Welcome to another episode of In Reserve, the Prosperity Podcast, where we focus on all things to do with the Reserve Protocol stablecoin. My name is Michael, and I'll be your host. Are you ready? Let's get started. First, a word from our sponsors, nobody. If you would like to sponsor the podcast, please shoot me a DM at RSR Ernie on Twitter or email me at inreservepodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out erniesreservestore.com for all of your reserve t-shirts, sweaters, hats, and more, as well as a full list of podcast episodes to date. On this episode of the podcast, we've got our first ever return guest, and probably the most fitting one to return to the show, the founder and CEO of Reserve Protocol, the head honcho himself, Nevin Freeman. How are you doing, Nevin? I'm, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me back, Michael. I appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast and your very busy, busy schedule. Um, just a little briefer on what this podcast is about for those of you guys new here. I started in hopes to build community as well as help people and myself learn and understand the project more. And part of that community building was getting to know some of the bigger members of the reserve space and getting to know them a little bit outside of crypto as well as get updates such as the one you're listening to right now. So with that in mind, I think a great starting point would be getting to know you a little bit better. I don't foresee any way someone could possibly be listening to this and not know who you are, but in the odd <laughs> chance there are a couple. Do you mind giving a brief introduction to who you are? Yeah, so um, I'm Nevin. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of Reserve. Um, and I guess, are you interested in, yeah, that, that's, that's who I am basically. <laughs> awesome. Um, and I guess let's get started here. The last time you were on the podcast uh, was, I think I took a quick look at my notes, was November 2020. And uh, it's almost been a year now, and it feels like a couple months have passed by. It's, it's crazy how, how fast the time is going, especially in crypto. Um, do you mind providing a little bit of an update uh, with regards to where the project is at? And, and we're going to kind of shape this in terms of doing section by section. So there's going to be topics in terms of uh, app usage to your team, to the marketing campaign, to the mainnet protocol and app development. Um, for each one of these little topics, uh, if you don't mind just providing a brief little update on where you guys are currently at. And then I've also gathered a whole bunch of questions uh, that I'm hoping from, from the community that I'm hoping to guide this conversation towards. Um, so the first one we're going to do is app usage and adoption in terms of uh, how you guys have been able to expand into Venezuela, how many people are currently using it, how many uh, transactions are you seeing on a daily basis? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, and, and in preparation for this, I went through and pulled some numbers um, that, are, that are recent as of today. So hopefully this will be a good overview. Um, so in terms of the total number of users that have created accounts in the app in any form, um, and, and this is like a little bit different from the number of people who've downloaded the app. I'm not sure exactly the number of people who've downloaded the app, but this is like people who've signed up to a waitlist at least, um, or ended up creating an account um, or, or actually using it regularly. Uh, the number is 290,000. So that's like since, and it, I think it's a really good sort of time to review these numbers because it's been about a year since we launched the app, um, like a, I think a little bit less. And so over the first year, it turns out about 290,000 people have downloaded it and, and created an account in some form. Of those, 
at this point, um, about 100,000 people actually come and open the reserve app each week. Um, so there's a bunch of people who, you know, maybe they joined a waitlist and then they didn't get around to coming back and joining, or they tried the app out and it wasn't for them. It didn't actually provide the services they wanted. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who download it and they look at it and they're like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't have, I don't have funds to put in this account or um, there's some reason why it doesn't work for them. So it, there's about a hundred thousand people who are actually coming back and opening it every week. And then of those hundred thousand, there's 45,000 that we as a project are the most focused on. Those are the ones that we define as active customers. And so an active customer is somebody who has funded their account at least twice um, and have transacted more recently than 30 days ago. Um, and so, um, and I can share a little bit of information about these 45,000 active customers for you to get a sense of like, you know, what kind of activity they're doing. Um, so, so yeah, so a typical active customer in the app um, after being active for a couple of months, usually like on average, we'll have a balance of about $100. Um, so, you know, and this is focused on like the consumer segment of our users. There also is a segment of users that are like business and institutional type users. And I'll touch on those in a moment. Um, but like our consumer users, the, the average user has a balance of about $100 after they've been active for about 60 days. And that's about like where people's balances are, are, are sort of, you're reaching um, and staying at this point on average. So again, there's some people that have much less and some people have much more, um, but that kind of gives you a sense. And um, these people are making on average eight deposits or withdrawals per month um, and doing two like actual like RSV transactions per month. So you can see it's still the case that the majority of the usage in terms of transactions is actually people moving money into the system and out of the system rather than transacting within the system. Although that number is growing in proportion pretty quickly right now. Um, so basically what that means in practice, like why would that be? Why would people, you know, it's like if you imagine you have Venmo or Cash App, why would you move money in and out more than you're just actually transacting inside the app? That might be a little bit of a weird pattern. The reason why it makes sense is if you imagine that you have an inflationary currency and you're earning money in that inflationary currency, and then you're also spending and buying things in that inflationary currency at like the local grocery store or whatever, um, you want to earn that money and then move it into dollars as quickly as you can, and then periodically move it back out into your local currency in order to go make a transaction um, at the store or wherever you're going to like swipe your debit card and pay at that local currency. So you, you can sort of see that like the common usage pattern kind of indicates that savings behavior and then still spending in the local currency. And like I said, you know, the, the, amount of, um, the amount of transactions where people are just buying things directly with reserve is going up, but it's still lower. Um, and I think the, the relevant, I guess, metric there is that um, we've just hit about 5,000 um, merchants. We're a little bit past 5,000 merchants that are registered and accepting reserve as a form of payment. And so that's part of what's causing the um, sort of direct reserve transactions to go up. So in total per month, those 45,000 active customers are making about 540,000 transactions. So it's 540,000 transactions per month amongst consumers. And that number is, um, that number is growing at about 50% per month um, and has been for the past several months. Um, and then in terms of the, 
the actual transaction volume per month um, for those consumer users, it's about $45 per month um, in just direct uh, RSV transactions, um, and then about $300 per month in like deposit or withdrawal transactions. So again, people are doing more of just moving money in, saving, and then moving money out, uh, but then they're starting to do more um, internal reserve transactions per month, and so we're seeing that in the number go up. And so that's, um, if you total those transaction numbers up, uh, it's about $15 million per month done on the consumer level. Um, uh, and that's growing also about 50% per month. So, and then I guess the last thing um, that sort of helps sum up the progress over the past year is that the app has processed um, one, about 1 1.8 million total transactions. Um, and uh, that the total transaction volume um, was about $235 million um, over the course of the first year. Um, and about 25% of that total dollar volume was from consumers, and about 75% was from institutional, um, even though almost all of the transactions by count are made by consumers. And so basically what's going on there is uh, businesses have started to use the platform to move money like across borders to for their treasury management purposes. And so even though they're the minority of customers by number, they're the majority of actual transaction volume in terms of the actual dollar value. So that's kind of like an overview of the past year um, and the app uh, adoption and growth so far um, in the numbers. That's that's a very, very comprehensive overview and thank you for taking the time to grab the most up-to-date numbers up to today um, to share with everybody listening on this podcast. Um, first off, I want to say congrats to you and the team. Uh, that's a heck of an accomplishment. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, we're really, really excited about it. Yeah. You and, know, it's and, like it's like one year ago we just had this like terrible crappy total alpha app, you know, where like very few people were using it and we were like, we think this means that there's going to be demand for this, but it was hard to really believe. And at this point it's like, okay, you know, it's really blowing up. Um, and you know, the numbers are so small compared to, you know, crypto speculation numbers. You know, we talk about, you know, crypto speculation numbers, it's like billions moved per day. We're definitely not there yet, but uh, the trajectory is so strong that it's like, it's really hard to deny, okay, this is a real thing. You know, many, many people want this and, and need it. Um, and so, yeah, the numbers are, are very, very exciting to us on the team. Right. That's actually where I was going to head to next. Uh, in terms of where you guys had initially expected yourselves to be along this path, um, is this kind of right around where you expected the number of users or did you really never have any idea? Um, it's how, a good, how are they yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I actually have um, throughout the course of this year, starting in January, every like month or two, I ask people on the team to all at the same time drop into our team Slack uh, the number of active customers they expect by the end of this year. Um, and the number is like people have different estimates. Everyone's estimates are always like kind of all over the place. Um, but uh, I think they're starting to converge. And, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, some people at the very beginning predicted that we would end up having uh, more at the end of the year than they're predicting now. Some people predicted they would have less at the end of the year than they're predicting now. Um, and it's uh, the thing with exponential growth is that you know, it's still a little bit unclear exactly what it's going to be by the end of the year, um, because if these numbers keep growing at, you know, 50% per month, like that's, that's pretty significant. And we sometimes see spurts of growth that are even faster. So it was kind of a long answer to your question. Um, I, I guess the, the short answer is like, I feel very good about it. I think we're definitely on track. Um, obviously, you know, we always want the numbers to be as high as possible. Um, but, but yeah, I think that they're going really, really well. 
That's awesome. That's great to hear. And I think you guys, when you initially opened, I believe it was the month of March, um, when you opened it up to everybody, um, then you had to close it for a bit because you were just running behind on human resources. Um, do you guys have the capacity now to take on as many people as possible? Because I saw you guys opened up the wait list uh, a couple of days ago. Um, do you have the resources to take on basically as many users as possible now? Yeah, yeah, at least for the near future, we do. And that's one thing that's been super, super exciting internally on the team is, you know, we just added, I think it was 70,000 people off the wait list, you know, invited them to come and try it out. And um, yeah, like back in March, when we opened up the app and had lots of people join, it was like utter madness, like complete madness in terms of, you know, the operational team, people just working insane hours and being really overwhelmed. Um, and our, our customer support system like really didn't work very well. So we had a lot of upset users. And right now, um, yeah, we're just adding more and more people and we can just totally handle it. Like things are going really smoothly. Uh, we opened up access to the app, I think yesterday, again, kind of like we did in March and it's gonna be open for a while. And we're just feeling pretty good about that. Um, so, and you know, that comes from two things. Like one is changing the way that our system works. So we, we basically we got rid of Zendesk and we started using Intercom and we configured it very, very carefully. Um, and that's been serving us really well. And also we've just grown the team um, and the team, you know, has has more practice. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of people who um, were just starting earlier this year have kind of stepped up into leadership positions and have helped train up a whole lot more team members. Um, so yeah, so the capacity we have uh, is, is really helping us take on um, pretty significant user growth right now. Obviously, that can't go forever. We have to keep hiring, we have to keep improving our systems um, in order to keep up with that growth. But at the moment, things are looking good. Awesome. And uh, that's definitely something I want to touch on in a bit in terms of the team composition. Uh, but just a couple more questions. So uh, you had mentioned, and obviously the majority of people are going to look at number of active users, and that'll be sort of the headline that comes of this. I can already envision the tweets that are coming out of this segment <laughs> of the podcast. Um, but another one that I find interesting is you talk about a lot of transactional data and where it's coming from, um, how people are using the app. Uh, in terms of right now, as you said before, you're not seeing as much user to user transactions, but more so on ramp and off ramp. Mm -hmm. um, do these type of statistics influence anything to do with marketing or how you guys are trying to get more users to use the platform or how you guys are developing the app? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we're certainly interested in bringing on more merchants and, you know, sort of closing the loop and making it so that people can live their lives directly in stable currency and not have to change back and forth all the time. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is also, it, you know, it, it's really kind of, how do I put this? It's like, it's a trust building exercise, right? Like people have to become comfortable that it makes sense to keep their money in this app. Merchants have to become comfortable that, um, you know, that it's a safe way to transact, that nothing's going to go wrong. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I guess your question is like, do the statistics change that approach? Um, well, we definitely watch the statistics pretty closely as a feedback mechanism. So like, you know, we have uh, someone who's in charge of going out and signing up merchants um, and we track cohorts of merchants that join and we look at their, you know, their transaction patterns and we try to understand, you know, are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? So in that sense, I guess, um, the statistics that we're paying attention to are actually much finer grain than the ones that I just talked about, where we're looking at like, yeah, particular cohorts and trying to, you know, see if there are issues occurring or um, if, you know, if the demand is there in the way that we thought it would be and that sort of thing. 
Right. And in terms of the numbers that you just presented, uh, are they just Venezuela specific or do they include Argentina and Colombia? No, no, that includes Argentina and Colombia. And we are starting to see some significant uptake in Argentina and Colombia. Um, Venezuela is still definitely in the lead. And I think that's just because, you know, the urgency is so much higher um, with the, the state of the you know, monetary system there. Um, but yeah, we are starting to see uptake in those other two countries. And I guess to kind of to paint the picture there. So in Argentina and Colombia, we've been doing a number of things in the background that like aren't that sexy. So we're not really talking a whole lot about them, but they just have to do with like, you know, like in Argentina, making it so that the KYC process doesn't require you to submit documents that are like really inconvenient for people to find or the things that, you know, people don't actually want to share. Um, or in Colombia, you know, looking at the way that the transaction, um, pro you know, process actually happens in the background. And, um, you know, we're working on like integrating like a, a different form of transaction in the background to make the whole thing smoother. So basically, there's like, um, there's kind of these operational pieces where our experience with Venezuela was like we had to we had to sort of slog through many different operational pieces until you got everything lined up. And then once everything's lined up, then it it works. Then people want to use it because there's sort of no barriers in the whole process. And I think with Argentina and Colombia, we're getting closer to dialing that in. Um, and once we feel like we have that dialed in, then I think it'll make sense to sort of focus more and push more for for hard growth there. So I guess you're currently uh, sort of in the early stages, like you were in Venezuela in terms of beta testing and, and just having yeah. a, a wait list in, in those areas. Yep. Awesome. That's right. And, and my assumption would be that you're going to focus on Venezuela. Uh, will Argentina and Colombia come before mainnet or before Q4? Or is that something that you're focusing on next year? Well, I mean, the service is already live. So it's, it's not that we, you know, it's not that we're, um, it's not that it doesn't exist yet. And, and actually people, I think in those countries can, can just sign up and start using it uh, because we're not overwhelmed with um, the operations in those countries yet. Um, but it's just that we're not, you know, pushing for significant growth. And I guess to your question of like, well, when are we going to do that? Uh, we don't really have a particular, it's not like we have a particular timeline in mind. We're just fixing these um, sort of challenges as quickly as possible. I would predict that we actually are going to start pushing before the end of this calendar year. And would it require the same type of approach in terms of a, uh, um, a large number of employees on the ground and, and within that country? Or is there at some point some way for you to scale this operation so that you can have I don't know, a, a central uh, customer service help desk command center um, that doesn't have to actually be in that country? It's a good question. So, I mean, the thing is that our customer support team is all remote. I mean, our whole team is all remote at this point, um, and that's actually been working really well. So uh, we actually do have people in Colombia and Argentina, many, many team members in both of those countries already. And that's helpful just to have sort of the local cultural and practical and legal context um, in order to understand how things actually work um, in each place. So I think it's definitely very important for us to have people in each of the markets that we're acting in so that we really understand how they work. But the people who are providing customer support, you know, as long as they speak the same language, they actually don't have to be in the same country. So frequently, um, you know, frequently our app users today are actually dealing with somebody who's in a different country um, who's just able to speak to them in their language. Awesome. Uh, and then in terms of, I guess, more on the recent news, uh, and this sort of becomes almost a, a bit of a competitor to, to reserve, if you will, um, any thoughts on uh, El Salvador's adoption of Bitcoin and, and that happening yesterday? So I, I personally, honestly, I, I've, I've been so busy that I haven't really followed it in a lot of detail. Um, it seems to me like 
honestly, it seems a little bit silly. Um, like if you look at, uh, you know, the, the attempt to use volatile cryptocurrencies in Venezuela, you know, even where, you know, it, which is a place that had like a lot more need for an alternative currency, you know, Bitcoin and Dash um, uh, didn't really work out. And, you know, it was really just because the volatility makes them impractical as a currency. So I'm a little confused as to what the president of El Salvador is actually trying to do. Um, you know, I, I think maybe it's maybe it's just a, an attempt to bring in money effectively, you know, sort of bring Bitcoiners to the country or, you know, uh, buy Bitcoin and sort of shill it by giving it legitimacy from, um, you know, the country sort of blessing it. Um, having it actually used locally in the economy, I'm pretty bearish on that idea. It just doesn't really seem like that's going to be a, a useful way to store money and transact because I just predict the volatility to continue. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of my outside judgmental take. I haven't really looked closely. Maybe there's more of a plan that makes sense that I'm just not aware of yet. Yeah, no, I think that's the uh, the same sentiment that a lot of people have out there in terms of using Bitcoin as a transactional currency. Um, in in terms of that, who do you see as your biggest competitors uh, in this current space right now, especially in South America? Um, I know that somebody uh, in our RSR Discord the other day had uh, talked about this thing called Vi Value. I don't know if you ever mm -hmm. heard of it, V-A-I-L-U.com. Yep. It seems like yep. they're doing the exact same thing that uh, you guys are currently doing. Um, who do you see are some of your bigger competitors? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, the the, the biggest competitor, um, you know, if you could, if you really zoom out, is um, cash U.S. dollars. You know, really, when we when we actually interview users who tried using Reserve and then stopped, um, a frequent reason why they stopped is just because they ended up somehow getting easier access to cash than they had before. And then they were just satisfied with that. That's just like easier because like everybody already accepts it. Um, you know, you can just feel it in your hands. So there's no concern about it. Um, so really, I think cash US dollars are, are sort of the main alternative that we're working to outcompete and, and really offer something that's better than. Um, but in terms of other services that are similar, value is definitely one of them. And I think value seems like a pretty good and promising product to me. And it also seems like it's run by a pretty competent team. Um, and, and I think that they're quite dedicated. Um, the, the founders are from Venezuela, so they obviously understand um, the importance of doing this sort of thing. So I think it's really healthy that value, and, and there's other digital wallets um, that are going to market in Venezuela as well. Many of them are, you know, there's some that are offered by Venezuelan banks um, and others that are startups. Um, none of them have quite achieved um, sort of the, the level of energy that Reserve has achieved so far. I think value maybe is maybe is the closest there, although I, I haven't paid super close attention, so I'm not sure. But yeah, I think it's I think it's really healthy to have um, many products, you know, trying to serve the same market. I think, you know, we'll end up learning from each other, in some cases collaborating, in some cases, you know, kind of competing. Um, but I think that that's good. And then um, let's see, um, there's one other thing I wanted to add there. Oh, yeah. So actually, a, a really frequent um, competitor that we feel like we actually kind of feel ourselves bumping up against more right now is Binance Peer-to-Peer. -peer. So basically, like in Venezuela and um, to, to some extent in Argentina and Colombia, local Bitcoin had been quite popular. And local Bitcoin basically was a way to buy and sell Bitcoin um, 
where like originally local Bitcoin, I think the idea was to meet up and transact in cash, but that went away pretty quickly. Um, what people really end up doing is just making a peer-to-peer -peer bank transfer in exchange for Bitcoin. And, and, you, and you sort of look at this website where you see a bunch of advertisements of people buying or selling at whatever price. And it's almost like kind of like a Craigslist, but for buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, and so then you, you, you sort of click on an ad and then you go transact peer-to-peer -peer with that person. Well, um, you know, Huobi and Binance and other crypto exchanges have started to add a fiat on an off-ramp feature that basically works the way that local Bitcoin works. And Binance, um, I think because of their brand and just the, you know, they're a very effective team, um, and they have a lot of offerings on their website. Um, Binance peer-to-peer -peer has actually outcompeted local Bitcoin in Venezuela in particular, and, I, and it's growing in popularity in Argentina, and I'm sure it's probably used in Colombia as well. And oftentimes Binance peer-to-peer, -peer, if you're doing a small transaction, you can get a better price than if you're trading on reserve. Um, and so we've been, you know, under, like learning about the market mechanisms that they're using and thinking about, you know, how can we offer prices that are, um, that are, that are as good. The thing is that it's it's a lot less convenient in a particular way. It's like a little bit more scary because you're having to go and sort of look through a series of ads and then choose somebody to trade with peer to peer. But for users that really care the most about price, and especially if they're trading a small amount, because if you're doing a large amount, then actually our price will probably be better. Um, uh, for users that really care about price, it can be a better product. Um, so I think, yeah, Binance peer to peer is sort of one of the, the most salient competitors that we actually think about. Do any of these competitors and how fast they're moving or new ones that pop up that you're unaware of, do they affect your, I guess, your personal and your team psyche in terms of trying to move faster? Or is it something where you don't really want to move too fast until you've got the product correct? Uh, but there might be a little pressure. Obviously, there's always the advantage, the first mover's advantage of getting first uh, to mass market. Um, is, there, is there some type of pressure that you guys feel as you learn more about these competitors? I think so. Yeah, I think there is a little bit of pressure. Like we don't it's like we don't like we don't talk about the com competition a whole lot. Like we're not really we're very customer centric rather than competitor centric as a team culture. But I think it's there in the back of people's minds. You know, I certainly think about it sometimes. Um, and I think other decision makers on the team also think about it. So um, and yeah, I think it's a healthy amount of pressure. And, and like you said, it sort of creates that urgency because everyone is kind of thinking about like, well, who's going to get there first? You know, which thing is going to blow up? Um, and, and that is relevant to how all this turns out. Um, and so, so yeah, I, th I, think, I think it does cause a little bit of urgency that maybe wouldn't be there otherwise. Awesome. Um, and I want to transition to the team now. Uh, I know that you guys at one point had so many job postings and I'd see people retweet them all the time on Twitter. You guys were hiring. I don't even know how you guys expanded and grew that fast. And there must've been a point. Um, my fiance actually works for a, uh, a startup company as well. And during COVID they went from like 40 employees to like over a hundred employees, basically in the course of three to four months. And because of COVID restrictions and, and having to uh, talk online, there were a ton of people that she had never met and she didn't even know worked in, in the company. And yeah. she was wondering if they just accidentally got a link to the Slack. Um, do you mind giving a bit of an overview as to how many people you guys are at now and uh, and maybe where people are, are situated? Yeah, totally. So we're at about 150 people on the team now, which is crazy. Like we've gotten there very quickly. And it's like you say, you know, it's, it's very strange to not personally know a bunch of the people on the team, especially because we are remote. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a weird experience, but it's going really well. I, I still feel like really good about our team culture. Um, 
the biggest teams that have grown the fastest are operations and compliance. Um, you know, because we have to we have to make sure that we stay in compliance. We have to process all the KYC and you know uh, monitor things to make sure that if anything you know fishy happens, we we deal with that, etc. And then operations, you know, just includes like everything that's happening in the background um, to to power the app and all the customer support. So the compliance team right now is about 23 people. The operations team is about 77 people. Um, and then the other categories we have uh, product, um, administration, engineering, design, customer experience, business development, um, community, um, and um, yeah. Uh, so, so basic, and then you, I think you were asking when you say where they are, I don't think you mean in the organization, you mean like where they are in the world, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So, um, predominantly throughout Latin America and not really necessarily in any one country. Like our, our team really spans many, many different countries in Latin America at this point. Um, and then, you know, there are some people in the US um, and then we've also started to expand. We have some people in Europe and some people in Asia. Uh, and those are uh, more on the engineering team because on the, uh, for our engineering recruiting, we ended up finding out that um, Hacker News is like a really great place to recruit the kinds of people that we're looking for, um, for, the, for our engineering team. And uh, so that just gave us access to this global talent pool. Um, and so we started to actually have engineers that kind of circle the globe a little bit more than the rest of our team. Are you still looking to hire more? Yeah, we hire one new engineer like about every month uh, still, and, and, and that continues to go well. Awesome. And I think uh, in the beginning, when you were first looking for engineers, you had a really hard time trying to find ones that were up to your standard, mm -hmm. um, even to the point where you were offering some type of incentive for people to recommend people. Mm -hmm. um, did you have to compromise in terms of your original standards to fill these rules faster just because you guys were growing so fast? No, no, we were completely unwilling to compromise um, on that standard, um, you know, especially on the engineering team, uh, because it's just I mean, how do I explain that? It's like basically, you know, when when you're when somebody is, you know, making architectural decisions or writing code um, or modifying somebody else's code, et cetera, like there's just so many things that can go subtly wrong. And those things compound over time. And so you can end up with a code base that ends up just being really hard to change. It ends up being really slow to launch new features, really complicated to figure out bugs. So we just we have a very, very high standard um, for the engineers that we hire. And we've gone for you know pretty senior people. Um, and that's working out quite well. Um, and, and I think that the, the caliber and the culture on our engineering team, uh, I'm, I'm super, super proud of it. Um, and um, really actually discovering that we could hire effectively on Hacker News was a big piece of that. Um, we tried many different things. We tried, you know, having recruiters refer people to us where we would have paid them like a portion if we'd hired them. Uh, we tried a lot of outbound. Um, uh, and then ultimately, for some reason, like the Hacker News community just happens to have the kind of people that we're looking for. So that ended up being sort of the key to making it work. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And the, uh, the one question that I often get, uh, get told that I need to ask you um, is how is your energy level and how is the team's energy level? And are you guys worried about burnout? That's a good question. So in, in March during that push, um, our operational team in particular and, and, and compliance team, um, I think was, we were pushing them too hard, honestly. Um, and uh, it ended up being a problem. Like I think that some people were really under serious stress 
And we still are today um, from time to time for sure. Um, and I can't speak for everyone else on the team. It could be that there's some people um, that are having troubles that I'm not aware of, but we sort of reshaped how we do things um, a, a little bit in order to handle that. Um, and I think that we've basically, we've organized our work in a, a pretty sustainable way that I feel comfortable with. And I think so over, overall, that whole broad team of 150, I think we're um, working at a pretty measured pace. And, um, and so for like the average person on the team, I'm not worried about burnout. I will say though, that um, in a startup situation like this, um, we, we, and we do, and we're in this situation right now with some people on the team, you can have periods of time where like a particular kind of work just like explodes. There's just like more and more of a particular kind of work where you only have like one person or a few people on the team who are suited to do that work. Oftentimes senior people um, who, you know, it's their job to like manage a whole team and they end up having to take on a bunch of uh, individual work in order to cover something. So there definitely are some people on the team right now that I think are in that state of like, man, there's too much to do. And so um, we continue to care a lot about recruiting and, and, you know, it's actually, it's really important, I believe, for us to continue delivering on uh, recruiting more effectively in other areas, the way we have with engineering in order to take that pressure off and, and not sort of continue in that mode for an unsustainable period of time. So I do personally sometimes go through that sort of situation um, where like, you know, for weeks or, or months at a time, I'm like, you know, really, really putting in an enormous number of hours in order to make things happen. Um, but I try to not be in that state for too long um, because I know that it can be too much sometimes. And I also try my best to keep an eye on other people on the team, particularly senior members that end up taking on that burden um, to make sure that we uh, sort of recruit and, and don't let that get out of control. That's good to hear because obviously, as I can imagine, um, things are only going to get busier and more hectic going forward, yeah, especially towards true. the end of this year. So yeah. Um, uh, in terms of your investors and advisors, I know uh, previously when we talked in November of 2020, you had mentioned that you guys were kind of too early along in the process and that um, when the skill sets uh, of those advisors and investors uh, are more suited to what you guys are looking at, uh, then you'll start that reaching out process. Um, have you been asking or, or working with some of your investors and advisors yet? Yeah, we're kind of just at the beginning of that, um, sort of that phase that I referred to. Um, so uh, I guess the, the one case that comes to mind recently is, um, as you're aware, we're gearing up for this campaign um, where we eventually want to present to the UN the idea that stable currency should be considered a human right. So I had a phone call today actually with one of our investors um, who has some contacts at the UN and is aiming to get us in touch at this point, really just to like have the conversation with them about like, how does that even work? Like, you know, what, what do you actually need to do in order to get something like that brought to the floor and actually, you know, considered and ratified? Um, so that's just really planning ahead. You know, we're definitely not planning to show up at the UN, you know, tomorrow or next week or next month. Um, but so uh, that's one case where um, we're crossing our fingers that they'll be able to help make that happen. Um, but yeah, like I said, we're still at the beginning of that phase. You know, we've we've really just been focused on the product um, and you know building a product that itself is you know basically good enough to uh, for people to want to use it and tell their friends and get to viral growth. And then, and I, I feel like maybe I might've explained this last time. It's like, once you have a really significant user base, then business development deals where you're like partnering with other companies end up making more sense because you, you sort of have users to offer and they have users to offer and you can find ways to work together. Um, and so I, I continue to anticipate that 
our investors will sort of be more key once we have a significant user base as opposed to in this uh, earlier stage. But we're getting there. You know, it's, it's a lot closer now than it was a year ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of uh, the marketing campaign that you had touched upon, I noticed that when you talked about different departments of, of reserve, you didn't mention uh, a marketing, I guess, by the label marketing um, department. Uh, you did mention something about a community department. Uh, how was that marketing campaign going and how was it being chaired? Yep. So um, you asked, how is it being chaired? Yes, in terms of who is who is leading that, is that is that something that the community department would take on? Because you don't really have a marketing department per se. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the community um, we call them guilds. The community guild is in charge of public education um, and marketing. Um, and in the future, maybe we'll separate that to have a, a community and marketing department separately. But right now, it's all one thing. Um, so yeah, let me talk a little bit about how we're thinking about marketing right now. Um, so I think our main two goals really are number one, to continue recruiting great people and, and, and come to be able to recruit even more great people in, in new domains that we don't necessarily have good access to now. And number two um, is to gain cooperation from governments. Um, what does that mean? Basically, we want, you know, it's like, we want governments to understand the value of what we're doing. We want individual people who work in government to understand the value of what we're doing so that um, as we get bigger, we can sort of take a collaborative attitude wherever possible. That might not be possible everywhere. It could be that some governments in some places don't like what we're doing. Um, and you know, we're certainly prepared to deal with that scenario. Um, but where possible, we want to make it clear that there is a lot of humanitarian value that's being brought here. Um, so that we generally have as cooperative a relationship to governments as we can. So th those are sort of the two main underlying objectives that are driving um, sort of a lot of our public marketing right now. One thing I should mention is that, you know, I think a lot of people in the RSR community, understandably, want us to basically do marketing that is directly aimed at increasing the RSR price. And you know, for better or for worse, we don't do that. We just don't do marketing that's aimed at increasing the RSR price. Um, we also don't aim to decrease the RSR price. I think some people, you know, think that that's what I'm trying to do um, when I come out and say something that's not necessarily good news. I'm not. I'm not trying to make the price go down. I certainly don't want the price to go down. Um, but basically, you know, we are aiming to grow the movement, and we're aiming to bring the project to success. Um, and, you know, then it's up to people to make their own, you know, assessments of, of what that means for the RSR price if they're speculating on RSR. Um, but yeah, that like really fundamentally, you know, growing the movement and bringing the project to success in the long term is the goal. Um, and then in the short term, we have these specific goals of, you know, improving our recruiting and um, gaining cooperation from governments. Um, there's a couple more things I want to say there, which is like, we, we also have the goal of becoming more transparent. Um, and, and this includes, you know, this includes sharing um, negative developments, um, like I recently did on Twitter, which I know was um, not fun, um, but also, you know, more sharing of positive developments. There are positive things that happen that we don't get around to sharing, and I want to do a better job of being more transparent in both directions. Um, and in the past, I've been sort of tight-lipped um, kind of out of the selfish desire to prevent competition, um, where sort of I had the idea that 
if we didn't talk about the early successes that we were getting, um, that would mean that fewer potential competitors would be inspired to come and compete with us. And honestly, I regret that now. Um, I think that it was a mistake. Um, and that's because I think it led to community confusion because there was just stuff that like we should have just been talking about and reporting on that we weren't. Um, I think that uh, also like it just would be better like from the sort of world perspective to have more competition in what we're doing. Like all things considered, there are very few companies and groups trying to do the sort of thing that we're trying to do with crypto and more would actually probably be better. Um, and then also looking back, it's like the particular thing we're doing is so complicated and difficult that it's unlikely that us going and talking about it would actually lead others to come and be able to totally outcompete us and like take away that business opportunity entirely. It might make it a little bit smaller if there's more people competing, but I actually think it would have been better to be more transparent. So basically I'm working on um, sort of transitioning us to being more open now. Um, and unfortunately there's like a remaining problem there, which is, which is like legal or even sort of political, um, which is that like we don't know what most governments and regulators are thinking um, about you know cryptocurrency, about stable coins, about us in particular. Um, and so we're always kind of worried that we could say the wrong thing and upset someone. And so there's some categories of stuff that we don't want to talk about or we don't want to sort of like frequently message or whatever. And we we can't always like explain to the public, to the community why it is that we're not saying those things because it's maybe for these sort of legal or political reasons, which I find really frustrating. Hopefully we can find some way um, out of that conundrum. But generally we're trying to be more transparent um, over, over the course of time. Um, so, so yeah, okay, let, let, let me talk about the this new campaign that we're doing of stable currency as a human right. Um, so there, um, I think you can kind of see how that connects to one of the goals that I mentioned before. So the goal is like to convey the humanitarian value that stable coins are providing so that, you know, so that people that are working in relevant governments will appreciate those positive qualities and consider those when making like policy and regulation decisions. Um, so, um, and, and we, you know, we thought for a while, and 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 Gabo, who is our COO, um, who's you know the person from Venezuela who had the past experience with the Petro, you might be familiar with him. Um, he really thought a lot about this, and um, I think ended up with this really excellent articulation um, of you know a, a very very you know short and clear way to explain um, what we're the message we're trying to get across, um, which is that you know access to stable currency should be considered a human right. And, um, and so it's interesting because when you think about like, well, what is, what is a human right? Um, basically a human right is like when we decide that something, you know, it's kind of basically saying that like, it's within our power to provide this to everyone and it's essential to having a good life. Um, and because of that, we, we should really just decide, okay, we're gonna provide this universally. So like as an example, Clean, like access to clean water and sanitation was recognized by the UN as a, as a human right in 2010. Um, and like these days, there's like a debate going on about whether access to electricity and internet um, should be considered human rights. Like those haven't been sort of officially accepted yet, but that's sort of on the edge of like what humanity is thinking, well, maybe we should actually consider that a human right. So 
as we researched this, we realized, you know, actually access to stable currency sort of fits in pretty well with that, right? Like it's essential to living a good life in modern times in this modern environment. Um, and we think, I mean, and this is maybe a little contrarian, but we think that it is within our power to provide it to everybody. Um, and so we think that there is a little bit of an imperative to do that. Um, and so basically the idea is that, you know, we, we wanna gather momentum with the goal of eventually actually trying to get the UN to recognize it. Um, and we don't know like how long that will take or if it will work, um, but, but also the process itself uh, will, will help spread the idea. Like e even if we don't ultimately get the UN to accept it, um, just collecting all the momentum and, and sort of spreading that message, we think will be helpful for that goal of basically having people who are in governmental positions recognize you know, sort of in, a, in an understandable way, um, sort of the value that comes from the proliferation of stable coins. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the goal there. Uh, when you were thinking about this goal, and, and this is a very ambitious and I think a very noble goal to have in terms of uh, providing everybody in the world, or everybody in the world should have access to a stable currency. Um, was there any thought about what happens and how that could potentially be perceived if you don't get enough support or if that does fail? Um, I mean, that's always a risk with, with any, you know, any campaign or any movement. Um, the thing is that, you know, we believe that, you know, there's, there's so many people like even just in, in Venezuela who um, it's so clear to them from their everyday experience. And so we think that at least, you know, and, and there are many countries in the world that are having these issues, you know, the RSR community, um, you know, is very aware of what's happening in Lebanon, but also like in Zimbabwe, there continue to be issues with super high inflation. It's not really breaking news because it's been happening for so long, but it's kind of another situation that's very similar. And so th there are so many people in the world that are living with this, that we believe that if we actually, you know, put in the effort to reach them, um, and get them to get them to sign on. We really be able to show that support, um, but it won't happen overnight. You know, it'll it'll take effort to do. So so yeah, basically, I guess I should say I'm pretty confident that we can gather a really meaningful amount of support. Um, but um, but you never know. There's there's some risk. Right, for sure. Um, and you had mentioned that uh, I guess you guys have sent out something about how the marketing campaign was going to start. August 1st, and you, and you were going to start appearing on more podcasts and more interviews. Uh, do you mind providing a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if you guys have a plan in terms of specific events. I know this one was uh, yesterday, Stable Currency, um, uh, that petition. Um, do you have specific events that are lined up as you kind of gear towards mainnet and Q4? And do you mind providing sort of a, a little bit of a personal analysis in terms of how you think the marketing campaign is going so far? Yeah, I mean, I think it's <laughs> going slowly, um, and I I'm not, I'm not very happy um, about it. But I take responsibility. Like, essentially, um, as I mentioned on Twitter, like a big reason for delaying things is that um, I decided to spend more time focusing on the protocol side of things uh, because I wanted to keep that moving, and I am a part of the protocol team, and I'm an important part of that thinking process. Um, but I'm also, you know, one of the main spokespeople for the project um, and one of the main people who like coordinates with reporters and stuff. So um, yeah, part of it is I sort of actively decided, okay, I'm going to push the timeline a little bit. Um, and you know, it, it's it's always tough because it's like it kind of made me regret having you know come out and announced to the community what our planned timeline was uh, for for getting out and storytelling and educating the world about the project because then choosing not to hit that timeline is sort of seen as a negative thing but you know it is what it is 
Um, uh, and in terms of you know what our what our plan is, there's a a couple of key pieces that we're working towards. So one is I think that it's um, I think that it will be really valuable to get um, an in-depth story in um, a, a media outlet that isn't you know just inwardly focused on the crypto world that helps document what we're doing. And that's something that we're working on. Um, we and so like we, we have a plan for that where we think that that's going to work. Um, I again maybe I'm sort of shooting myself in the foot by pre-announcing this because maybe it'll take longer than we think. Um, but that is something that. Uh, we're working on and we anticipate coming up before too long and um, that's something that you know uh, I, you know the, the idea is like to sort of get the story of cryptocurrency working for real um, distributed beyond just the crypto world uh, we definitely want the crypto world to understand it and so we're going to be engaging with like you know lots of different uh, crypto media outlets in order to to have that story understood internally but having it understood externally i think is perhaps even more important um, because there's so much hate for crypto. And, you know, honestly, a lot of the hate is like kind of well-founded because crypto kind of is a casino and, and there sort of are a lot of issues with it, but there's also this other side. Um, and I think that we're really proving that other side right now. And I think it's important for the world to know that. So, so basically having an article that goes beyond the crypto world is something that we've prioritized. And then um, we're working on another piece, which is basically a a documentary film crew that produces these short like five to seven minute documentary segments that air on public television in the US um, and, and, and sometimes air internationally as well, reached out to say, hey, you know, we're evaluating different potential crypto projects uh, because we want to show sort of some, you know, interesting things that are happening in cryptocurrency. They ended up picking reserves to do this. And so um, they've recently, just in the past couple of days, um, done some filming um, with one of our users in Venezuela in order to sort of show uh, sort of what it actually looks like on the ground. Like, you know, what does it mean for this, for cryptocurrency to be used in everyday life? Um, and we're working with them to sort of help them produce that segment. So that's another piece that I think will help us sort of break um, out beyond sort of the ordinary crypto audience and sort of uh, spread the information about what's happening. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, obviously there's this campaign. And I should say that, you know, as you're probably aware, our, our signature campaign got off to a bumpy start. Um, I, I think maybe it's worth explaining that for a couple of minutes. Uh, basically, we were about to launch um, the, the campaign yesterday and then realized that change.org is blocked in some of the countries that we wanted to target and have people uh, sign the petition from. So last minute, we switched to using a different platform and we didn't realize that that other platform plasters their campaigns with advertisements because we all had ad blockers on our computers. So only after we announced it do we realize, oh man, this other campaign website actually really sucks. So our team is working on that in the background and they'll be out with something probably tomorrow or the next day um, to replace that. And that's part of why we haven't really promoted it. It's like, okay, there's not actually a whole lot of point of getting a lot of signatures on this first one because we're probably gonna have to switch to a different platform. So sort of an annoying bumpy start, um, but we, um, you know, Gabo has been doing some work basically to, to, prepare, to prepare like the RSR and the app using community to help us promote that. And so there's, there actually is kind of a lot of momentum in the background that hasn't really been brought to bear um, to, to market that campaign and, and get that to really travel on social media. Um, and that's, uh, so we'll see, you know, we'll find out, we'll check in in a, you know, a few weeks or a month and, you know, the, the number of signatures will be public. So we'll see how well that's really going. Um, but I'm pretty excited to see that play out. Um, and then, and then, yeah, and then I'm going to continue to 
I'm going to continue to, you know, have conversations like this and, and go on the crypto podcast circuit and talk to crypto media um, to try to inspire the crypto world, because I think that the crypto world itself sometimes suffers from an identity problem of feeling like, you know, it's not real. And I actually think that we can like sort of offer a little bit of life to it by sort of showing this really cool example of what's happening. Um, and then I, I'm also deciding that it makes sense, you know, part of my, part of the slowness and the frustration has just been, um, you know, getting the point across to, to other external people, to reporters and so on is sometimes difficult. And in this day and age, we can actually take some of that into our own hands. We can do our own, you know, recording of videos or publishing of, of posts and sort of get those to travel on the internet, even if they weren't necessarily posted by a major news outlet. Um, and so we're going to be focusing on some more of that, just basically doing a better job ourselves of documenting what's going on, showing the progress, showing what's working um, and getting the word out that way. Awesome. And I think that would be absolutely amazing and very valuable. I know uh, from my own perspective, uh, when that campaign for signatures came out yesterday, there was a lot of confusion. It was up for like an hour yeah. and then it was yeah. taken off and then we had to switch over. Yeah. And, and one of the most frustrating parts was not really understanding or knowing what was going on and there wasn't yeah. as much communication. And so it's it's pretty cool. Uh, and it's, it's awesome that, that you're saying that uh, you do kind of understand this and, and you are trying to push towards more transparency and more communication. Uh, would that be something that perhaps uh, a marketing director or communications director um, uh, could potentially take on? And I think in a broader question, uh, I, I'm assuming probably right now, you're the one calling the shots on this marketing campaign and sort of aligning up what you wanna do uh, and these different ideas. Um, is there a point where uh, your resources are kind of spread too thin? And you talked about this earlier in terms of focusing more on the protocol side. Um, that that it's just not reasonable for you to take on all of these different things at the same time? We actually do have a team that's running most of this autonomously. So when it comes to the campaign, that's something that I'm not really having to focus on on a day-to-day -day basis. I do sit in on some meetings and sort of help decide um, some directions. And I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, ask for my opinion on things. Um, but actually, we're already to the point where a lot of that is happening without me having to directly work on it. Um, it's, we don't really have that yet on the protocol side of things. It really kind of is on me to decide, okay, it's worth spending the time to sit down and write this out or explain it. Um, and that's something that I, I do think, um, uh, we, I think that there is some needed growth on that side. Awesome. Uh, before we move on to the second half of our podcast, first a word from me. If you're a proud reserve ranger and looking to rep reserve by wearing some merch, Check out erniesreservestore.com for shirts, sweaters, hats, and more. That's erniesreservestore.com. Now back to the podcast and the more exciting <laughs> An part excellent of sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're looking to sponsor the podcast and you're listening to this right now, I'm all ears. So please shoot me a DM on Twitter at RSR Ernie. Um, now to the fun part of things. And, and I know before we even started recording this podcast, you had talked about how this would be more so the meat and potatoes. Uh, and you had a lot to talk about in terms of uh, protocol and app development. So I'm going to let you take the reins here, uh, provide a little bit of a summary for, for everybody, and then we can kind of touch on little bits here and there. Yeah, great. So yeah, so I want to try to describe, um, I wanted to, uh, like, I, I guess I'll start by summarizing like how things are going with protocol development and governance, but then I want to spend some time talking about the updated protocol itself. Um, and this is something where, you know, 
we had wanted to fully document it and put that documentation out before talking through how the protocol works, like on a podcast or to reporters or anything to avoid confusion. But um, we've been busy and, and timing has stretched out. And so I've decided, you know what, we're just going to do it and we're going to put the documentation out as soon as we can get to it. So, um, you know, you should you should sort of imagine that others are here um, and try to ask all the questions, you know, that come up in your own mind, but also other questions you think others might have. So we can try to make this as clear as possible um, for people who are listening. Sounds good to me. Cool. So in terms of timing, um, we're still pushing hard for a Q4 launch of the protocol. Um, we, you know, with with a protocol launch like this, you really never know for sure exactly when it's going to happen, um, but that is what we're pushing for. Um, and in terms of governance, um, just like a little bit of an update um, from what I shared the other day on Twitter, is that um, we are evaluating starting off with simpler token voting, um, basically exactly the kind of token voting that we've been negative about in the past, and we're actually still kind of similarly negative about it, but we believe that it could work for a period of time at the beginning of the life of a protocol like this, and uh, that it might be safe to leave it to that governance system to evolve with our input to a more advanced system over time. So that's something that, yeah, it's like, as we've spoken about, we really don't think that token voting is sufficient long-term for, um, you know, a, a bunch of sort of incentive reasons. Um, but we think that this is something that would help us keep timelines to initial launch under control. And so it's looking like that's going to, uh, that's going to be the direction we pursue, but we're currently like proving out a number of assumptions about that to make sure that there that that wouldn't be too unsafe. Because sorry, obviously, when, sorry, you know, I, I want to cut you off here. Yeah. When you talk about simple token voting, you just mean one RSR equals one vote. Pretty much. Yep. So basically, um, you know, there's a, a a sort of voting protocol that has been this has sort of grown in popularity that was pioneered by Compound. Um, and a similar version is used by Uniswap and some other teams have started to use it. And it, it is that, it's basically one token is one vote. You can delegate your votes to other addresses. Um, and then there's you know, different choices to make about exactly what the voting period is, what, what constitutes a quorum, um, what actually causes a change to be um, enacted. Um, but, um, but yeah, basically one token is one vote. That's sort of the core of it. Awesome. Thanks. Sorry. Before I cut you off there, please go on. I just want to make sure that everybody listening is, yeah. is, is yeah. sure what that, no, what that means. No, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, and so, um, so like, I guess, like, let me step back a little bit and talk about like, why, why this emphasis on decentralized governance from the start at all. So, um, okay. So, I, I personally um, learned something really interesting when carefully studying the securities laws earlier this year. Um, I, I sort of came to understand an important piece of deep wisdom that are that's in that's sort of embedded in the securities laws um, that I think is actually pretty useful for people in the cryptocurrency world to understand and actually in a weird way kind of just actually ends up revealing some of the value of decentralization, some of the value of some of these crypto systems in an in a, in a interesting way. So basically, okay, one premise is that centralized entities basically have an information asymmetry by default. What do we mean by that? So like, if you're at a company, 
and that company has you know shares that are trading on the stock market and you make some decision about what to do or you know something breaks or goes wrong by default the information about that new decision or the information about that new development is private it's only known by the people in the company and maybe even only a few people in the company and so there's this natural information asymmetry between you know someone outside who maybe is thinking about investing in the company and somebody who's inside the company actually seeing it operate um, that just arises every moment of every day just because you know you're not there you're not involved the thing isn't sort of transparent and available to you okay so that's one premise the next is that centralized um like financial asset issuers like like for example like a company that's issuing uh shares of itself um they kind of have the incentive to withhold negative information or sometimes even to lie right so if you're running that company and then something negative happens and you can kind of tell well you know if we were to tell the public about this maybe the share price would go down you might decide maybe to just not mention it or you might even kind of pretend that something, you know, is is you know something has happened that that hasn't, or you know, you know, even when asked about it, you know, deny that something bad has happened or claim that something good has happened. And so, th these these two sort of premises about like there being that information asymmetry by default, and you know, it's it's sort of not natural to go ahead and, and sort of spread that information publicly. It's not natural to be transparent because you sort of want to kind of pretend that things are going well. Th that's actually kind of the reason fundamentally, as far as I can tell um, from my study, why the securities regulations exist. They sort of exist to force centralized entities to act in the interest of the asset pur purchaser instead of acting in their own interest. Um, and, and they're forced to do that by disclosing material information. So there's all these detailed rules about the type of information that you have to disclose if, if a company is going to go public or if it, you know, sort of disclose on an ongoing basis. Um, and so does that make sense? Do you have any questions about that before I go to the next part? Uh, no, that makes complete sense. Uh, I actually used to be an auditor by trade for KPMG, so <laughs> I, have totally come into, I come into many, many of these instances in which people have that mentality. So yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. And so then like, then something I realized when like, you know, sort of coming to understand this is that decentralized governance actually can sort of play a similar role as the securities laws, <laughs> which is a little bit weird, but basically here's the idea. The idea is that if governance actions are, if, if they're decided on by many parties, then no single party has private information that they can hide because the information is already spread across many parties, like when the decision is made. And then the other thing is if changes are implemented in public, and especially if there's a delay between sort of the ratification of changes and the actual enactment of changes and like th th that would mean that like someone says oh let's change these parameters or let's like swap out this smart contract for another smart contract if the, if the way that the governance system works is that that decision gets made but then there's a delay of some number of days or even weeks before the change actually gets implemented then pretty much all of the information that the public needs in order to you know, in order to judge what's going to happen in the future once that change is implemented, it's publicly visible in advance. 
um, in advance of it having an impact, I should say, because you can just read the code. You can just see, okay, this parameter is going to change to this other number in five days or in two weeks or whatever, um, or this, you know, this code in the smart contract is going to be replaced with this code. And so, um, and so especially if you can build like a decentralized governance culture where all the dis like discussions are, are had in public, then, you, then, then everyone can see, you know, the, the discussion process that's going on, then they can see, you know, things starting to form in terms of like candidate code being written, and then they, they can definitely see it once it's proposed, because when proposals are made on chain with these decentralized governance systems, that the best way to do it is that you have to bring the fully implemented change and make the proposal of like, you know, let's vote on whether to do exactly this. It's not like you're voting on, you know, sort of, should we do this thing in general? And then we'll delegate it to someone to implement it. No, like the implementation has to be done in advance. And then you're voting on that specific change. And then everyone publicly has the ability to inspect it. Now, obviously not everybody is going to sit and read the smart contracts and not everyone would even be able to sit and read the smart contracts. But once that information is available publicly, people who do have the ability to interpret it can go access that information. And then they can go like sort of explain to other people in terminology that makes sense, even if not everyone is going and reading the code themselves. And this is actually similar to if a company is reporting information, you know, about its technical developments or about, you know, its financials, not everyone's going to go read that. Not everyone's going to be able to even understand it if they read it. But once it is made public, then like analysts who do have the incentive to spread that information in an honest way, they don't have the incentive to sort of lie or, or, not, or not spread that information the way that the issuer might. Um, you know, they'll actually spread that um, amongst the community. And, and the same sort of thing, you, would, you can see happening, well, I say you can see, I'm actually not thinking of a particular example, but I think you can see that it, it definitely would happen in the case of decentralized governance. If someone comes and proposes a change and the change gets voted in, um, and it hasn't been implemented yet, and, it, and the change actually would be really bad for people um, for some subtle reason that you would need to understand the code in order to in order to interpret. As soon as one expert understands that, they're going to go public with it, and other experts are going to go look at it, and like the word is going to spread. Um, and so that fundamental public availability of information prior to the moment where that information you know that change is going to affect somebody, um, it actually makes it so that. Uh, you know, a, a decentralized, like a, a system that's governed in a decentralized way, it doesn't have the same fundamental issue that the securities laws are there to protect people from. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I just find this really, really exciting. And it's so interesting because, you know, people in crypto tend to think that the securities regime is so bad and the SEC is so bad and, you know, they can be, they can be annoying for sure. Um, but like, it's very interesting that like, the actually the thing that the securities laws are there to deal with and, and prevent decentralized governance actually can also deal with and prevent um so they're actually sort of fighting for a similar cause depending on depending on your motivation for implementing them so so yeah so basically the conclusion that we reached um from sort of thinking about this and having these realizations um is that um yeah basically DeFi protocols that are managed by central entities, you know, just by a multi-sig or just by a single address or like a single company, have more of the problems that securities laws are meant to apply to. Um, whereas like DeFi protocols that truly are governed by many parties together in public, um, especially if they have appropriate delays um, for the, the public to like receive and process all the info 
um, prior to the changes being enacted, are, they actually are much less prone to the kind of deception um, that, you know, that be even like a normal company would be. And so that's why, like fundamentally, that is why we don't want to launch this new protocol, which will include a new stablecoin, um, uh, you know, under centralized control um, is basically because, you know, both, both in law and also in spirit, um, we can achieve, you know, these benefits of decentralization um, and basically make it so that the, the, that securities reporting regime isn't necessary to protect, you know, people who are participating in the protocol. Awesome. No, that's a, that's a great, great summary there in terms of uh, the need for a decentralized system and how you guys plan on rolling it out. Uh, just a quick couple of thoughts here in terms of the simple voting structure and, and let's say one token equals one vote. Um, how do you uh, sort of prevent bad actors from taking over that space? Um, so I'm thinking uh, in terms of a real life comparison, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily, and I know myself, um, we get packages in the mail for um, voting, voting for an AGM for a new board of directors for a company that you're invested in. And because I've only got, let's say, 10 shares of a certain company, I don't necessarily feel like my vote will actually mean that much for me to take the time to, to kind of study all these people and, and give my input on that. Um, and, yep. and we see that we said a lot with, with democracy as well, right? Even if everybody gets one vote, a lot of people don't feel like their votes are necessarily counted, especially if they're in regions where uh, they're heavy Democratic or heavy Republican, that they don't go out and vote. So how do you stop that with this single or this simple voting mechanism in which a lot of people who hold smaller amounts feel that their vote may not matter as much or make a difference? I don't really think there is a solution to that. And this is one of the things that I don't like about normal token voting. And one of the reasons I think we ultimately will need to have to move past it. Um, I think that it still can be functional, especially um, in the early days, because right now with the RSR distribution, there, there is basically uh, actually a relatively large number of holders who have significant stakes. Um, who I think will feel that their votes do matter. Um, and so even though there's a much larger number of smaller holders that won't necessarily be motivated to participate in the process, even just the, the, the relatively moderate number of, of large holders will constitute pretty significant decentralization, like much more compared to if it was just, you know, sort of our development company directly governing it. So, so but I, I see what you're saying. Um, one interesting idea that someone who is part of our protocol and governance effort brought to the table that's kind of a very out there and clever way to handle that um, incentivization issue you just mentioned where you know people who are small fish don't have the incentive to participate is um, the, so the, the normal way democracy works right is like you look at well what what, what did the majority vote for and so then if you're not right on the line of 50 50, then it just doesn't really feel like an individual vote would matter very much. This other idea is, well, what if instead of using um, a majority algorithm, you actually use a system where, you know, everybody votes and then you look at the people who, you know, the number the percentage that voted for and the percentage that voted against. And rather than just taking, you know, the majority, you actually use those two numbers, those two proportions as probabilities, and then you randomly choose what to do but you randomly choose in a weighted, like a sort of weighted random um, uh, uh, outcome. So let me make a simple example. Let's say that we're voting on, 
you know, whether to have bananas on our cereal or not for breakfast. And let's say that 75% of people vote yes and 25% of people vote no. Then basically a, a sort of semi-random process um, would then follow and there'd be a 75% chance that the outcome would be yes and a 25% chance that the outcome would be no. Um, but actually it's, the vote itself doesn't determine the outcome, the vote just determines the weight in the random process. Okay, why? What, what's the point of this? Well, the point is that then if you're on that 75, 25 line, you know, even a small vote will move that a tiny bit and that actually will affect the probability. So no matter how many people are voting for or against, you always on the margin can move that probability by going and casting your vote one way or the other. And so if people come to understand that new system, um, then you actually get a stronger incentive for each individual person to vote because they always know that they actually are moving the probability the same as opposed to only shifting the probability if the vote is like about 50-50 at that point. So to be clear, I don't actually think that we're gonna use this in our governance um, protocol because it's just like a little bit scary to like have that sort of randomness. Um, but there's kind of an argument that it makes sense because it's like, well, there is uncertainty in sort of in the world and amongst the voters. So maybe it does make sense to do that. Um, but, but I just wanted to share that as like, that's like, that's an example of the kind of thing that our governance team throws around, where you know we're we're sort of spitballing these different ideas and thinking through how do we solve these fundamental challenges in governance, like the one you just mentioned. And so that's like one interesting direction that happens to be you know that happened to come up in our conversation as we were thinking about how to solve that voter participation problem. That's actually a pretty interesting potential solution that you brought up. And the first thing that came to mind was if the minority wins a couple of times in a row, there's probably going to be a riot. Um, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty cool to think about these different scenarios and potential ways to, to, to fix this issue. And obviously, nobody's really come up with a perfect solution. And each scenario itself requires a different type of, of solution to, to fix the problem. Uh, but I think it's really cool that, that you guys are thinking about this. And it's been a very fun topic to think about. Um, another thing that I often think about is, and I think you had mentioned this in your, in your tweet thread that you had the other day, is uh, how do you motivate people to act in the best interests of the protocol in the long term? And uh, again, I relate this back to real life. Uh, you've got the difference between sort of a, a democratic government and a communist government. And a democratic government may mostly think short-term because they're constantly trying to get reelected over and over again. Um, in, in this protocol, you may have people who want to cash out in a, in a recent time frame or, or kind of a short future time frame. Um, that will make decisions that will benefit them in the short term, but will hurt the protocol in the long term. How do you prevent that from happening? And how do you prevent people from buying a certain amount of tokens leading up to this vote and then, and then dumping them after so that they're able to impact the vote more? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's a, there's, a, there's a lot to say on that. Um, yeah, and, and I think I might've mentioned this in the tweet thread. It's like, you know, one thing we realized pretty early on is that, um, you can never really, like, just because someone currently holds an asset, you can, excuse me, you can't even assume that they are long that asset, that they want the price of that asset to stay high because they could have a short position, even a larger short position than their long position somewhere else on some centralized exchange or something. Um, so the thing that we realize is like, well, you know, so, some, of the, some of the things that you could rely on are you know if someone has deposited a token into a smart contract and there's some particular time lock, 
uh, where the, you know that they can't withdraw it for some number of hours or days or months or whatever, well then uh, you know that they you know that they at least um, would not want to have that token taken away from them during that time period. So like I think I mentioned slashing and that tweet thread, basically the idea is that like, you know, if you deposit say your RSR in a voting smart contract, um, even if you're short RSR somewhere else, if the RSR that you've deposited just gets taken away from you, that's bad no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're short somewhere else, like you just have lost value. Um, and so that's something where you can potentially end up uh, having predictable crypto economic incentives um, if you have a protocol that sort of, you know, rewards people under some scenario and punishes them by taking away some, some fraction of their coins under another scenario. And to do that, their coins have to be locked. They have to be locked in some smart contract for the period of time um, until, until you get to the point where you evaluate and decide whether to reward them or punish them. So that's one, that's one possible way. Um, I think that like, you know, there's, there's, there's the level of like, how do you be certain of something where like, you know, if, if you want to be sort of like effectively logically certain of it, then, you know, if you have coins locked in a smart contract, then you can sort of derive all these other properties from it in a really predictable way. There's also the like less certain and less predictable, um, but sort of de facto reality, um, even with like current token voting where it's like, okay, well, there actually are these people who have huge amounts of, you know, token um, for, you know, Compound or Uniswap or these other protocols that are using token voting, and they actually are planning to hold them for a long time. And if you're going to hold them that long, then it's probably really expensive to be short that long as well. And so, like, there is, like, a practical reality of, like, actually, there are sort of whales who want the thing to go well. Um, but the thing that we, our team doesn't really like about that is that it's hard to reason about because it's like, you know, maybe the maybe the market conditions change, and all of a sudden that's not true anymore. Maybe all, a bunch of those people just decide to sell their tokens, um, and maybe they sort of realize that they're going to do that, and then they have the opportunity to participate in governance once they've sort of decided that they don't really care what's going to happen. Um, so, so yeah, so it's a sticky problem. That's you know the sort of locking tokens and having the threat of being able to take them away or reward you um, is one sort of solid way to deal with that. Uh, are there other problems that you foresee happening um, in the future that uh, you guys are currently trying to figure out right now? Um, and, and, and kind of saying this with the premise of uh, you had earlier alluded to just simple of simple voting mechanism, uh, uh, one token to one vote, so that you guys can get this thing, uh, I guess, up and up and running within the time frame that you would like, which would ideally be Q4 for mainnet. Um, how hard is it to to make that adjustment as you as you go along? You mean to switch from one process yes. to another? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's there's a slight leap of faith because you have to trust the initial governance mechanism to actually uh, delegate its power to the next governance mechanism. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. I think, you know, and that's part of why we're thinking through this analysis and trying to be careful about it. It's looking to me like um, the risk wouldn't be too high. Like I think most token holders that have significant shares, you know, significant portions of the token will care about things going well and sort of will be intellectually convincible about the merits of, you know, an, an evolving system. So I'm currently feeling pretty optimistic about it. Um, yeah, I think, okay, there was something else I wanted to point out here. Um, well, perhaps it'll come up. Do, do you have any other further questions? 
Yeah, I guess uh, because when I think about it in my mind, um, and obviously I have no experience uh, creating a, a decentralized system, uh, in my mind, it just feels like if you come up with the wrong governance mechanism or structure, and as you had alluded to uh, just in this recent answer, that you would need the, the current governing structure in order to approve the, the future one or the next one. Um, is there a chance that uh, this project would fail because of this and 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 that likelihood uh, is that is that ever measured out obviously when you're starting a business and when you're running a business you're always making decisions based on incomplete yeah. information and at this point yeah. this this is one of those but this no, is a, a very significant decision yeah no it's it's a great question it's a great question and actually um i'm glad you asked because it, it totally points back to the thing i wanted to add which is um in the worst case scenario where we end up in like a sort of gridlock of like the initial governing mechanism isn't willing to give way to the next one, then the worst case scenario would be forking. Like we would just create a new R token um, as, they're, as they're called in the new protocol, which we'll get to probably in a few minutes um, with the new governance mechanism. And, you know, and then basically just be in competition with the earlier version, right? And, that, and that's actually, it's actually not that uncommon to do something like that in um, in DeFi in particular. You know, if you look at um, Compound or Uniswap, they tend to have like V1, V2, and like the original ones still exist because they were designed in a way where they couldn't be shut off. But if the new version is better, if it actually performs better in terms of you know making better decisions and you know offering better features and so on, um, and you know, and if you know prominent community members are in support of it, then people are likely to switch over. So it would be a disruptive outcome. Like it wouldn't be as clean as if the original governors decide to switch over. But no, I think there's a very, very low chance that it would be project ending. Um, yeah, so I'm not too worried about it. And who would be part of that team, or would that just be you that would ultimately make that decision if it was necessary? Well, I mean, the thing is, anyone can fork. You know, that's the that's the strange thing about about crypto, but you know, I think in practice, the, the scenario we're pointing to is one where, you know, our team in consultation with others in the community, you know, has been working on a new decentralized governance, you know, system. And we've eventually, you know, gotten to some formal proposal where there's actually a set of smart contracts and we submit it for voting. Maybe we do that a few times. And for whatever reason, the token holders aren't willing to vote it in. Well, all the work's already been done to create that code. And so, you know, we, which, you know, could be the, the reserve team on, you know, that's part of the development company or, or it could actually even be end up being launched by someone else if they just decide to do it first, um, could just launch this alternate version. Um, and so with these sorts of things, it's like, it often is kind of a question of what does the community consensus end up being about, you know, which one is the real one or which one is the one that is going to get listed on exchanges and used and whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it would end up being sort of a, a sort of a question of, you know, kind of the network effects and, and adoption and so on. And so, you know, in the extreme case, like if it, if it, especially if it took us a long time to get to the next version of the governance protocol and the first version got like really, really popular, then maybe you could have sort of a lasting fork situation like Ethereum and Ethereum Classic or, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash or whatever. Um, our, our objective is definitely to get to a more evolved version of decentralized governance relatively quickly. And so, you know, hopefully that, that wouldn't be an issue. But again, even if that did happen, it certainly I don't think would be catastrophic.
Right. And I'd foresee that probably if that needed to happen, the forking, it would be rather relatively soon after the, the protocol is launched and the decentralized, uh, the DAO is, is, is in place. Um, and I think a lot of people at that point would basically, including myself, um, would just basically go where, where you deem the, where, where you would go. So if you choose that, Hey, this isn't working, you'd fork. I'd imagine the majority of the community would, would follow you, uh, into that new path. So, um, let's talk about the protocol a bit. Uh, a lot of people, always have this question This always comes up and, and I'm sure you've answered it multiple times. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you've answered it with, we're not exactly too sure what it looks like. Uh, but let's talk about uh, mainnet arbitrage and, and developing the protocol and how that's been going. Okay, so yeah, so I'm excited to talk about the protocol overall. Um, I think it makes sense to kind of start by going back a little bit to the vision like what is the point of it in the long term you know why are we not just you know why don't we just have an app that uses you know a centralized stable coin and call it a day um so basically the purpose of the protocol in the long term is essentially to bring into existence uh, a state independent asset-backed like world reserve currency that is the ultimate goal and the currency is, um, you know, it's meant to be stable in something like global average purchasing power, both on a short time span, like from month to month, but also on a long time span, like from century to century. Um, so basically, it, the, the goal is for it to be like the ideal for both transacting on a regular basis um, and also safely storing wealth long term. Um, and so, like, you know, the, the big idea behind that is that if reserve succeeds, then rather than switching reserve currencies each time, like a major world empire gives way to the next one, um, which is what has happened in the past, uh, the world could essentially go on using this independent currency, um, even as those global power regimes change. Um, and so, and then like another important goal there is that unlike a central bank digital currency an independent currency would sort of not be easily wielded by a single nation um, to like surveil or somewhat control its users so that's you know that is that's kind of part of the fundamental reason why um, we started off the project with designing a protocol and why we're putting so much effort into upgrading and implementing that protocol as opposed to just using a fiat-backed stablecoin in our app forever. Um, and so essentially the, the design of our protocol, both the original design and this updated design um, are based on a couple, like two really important assumptions. And if these assumptions turn out to be false, then our protocol may not be the right way to achieve that vision. Um, or it might have to evolve to, to function differently in order to achieve that vision. So the first assumption is that um, basically at all times throughout the future, there will exist some basket of assets um, that has in aggregate short-term stable value um, so that you can have that like short-term, like month-to-month -month stable purchasing power. And then the second assumption is that through non-state-backed governance through this sort of decentralized governance process, um, the protocol can evolve that basket over time 
in order to achieve long-term stable value. So like we're not assuming that there's a single basket of assets that will stay stable for like a hundred years, um, but we are assuming that um, we can put together a governance mechanism that will allow the basket to evolve so that uh, the, 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 net, the net effect of that is a stable value over a long period of time. Um, so that's, um, that's kind of an important sort of just reminder of what it is we're trying to do overall. Um, and so one, one big update in the new version of the protocol is that we're designing it explicitly so that, and, and actually to encourage, um, uh, like basically anyone to deploy a reserve token if they want to. And it's not, it's not that it's meant to be like Uniswap where all of a sudden there's like thousands of reserve tokens. I don't really foresee that happening and that's not really the goal. Um, the goal is to make it so that alternate versions can be tried and it is like sort of culturally understood within the community that that's an acceptable thing to do. Um, and so, um, let's see, how do I explain like why that is? So, so an important reason for that is that um, the, you know, it could be that a governance process that we choose, this actually kind of goes back to just what we were talking about. It's like, it could be that a governance process that we choose ends up leading a particular R token to ossify or to um, have some sort of setup that is not optimal. And, you know, maybe, you know, community members who are active, who are financially motivated or who are motivated just because they want to see this outcome the same way we do, they might try really hard to get that reserve token to change in the way that it works in the way the basket's set up or the way that's parameterized or the way it functions and not be able to. And I think that it's really valuable if there's always an option to just create another one, just create another one that works this other way and try to convince people to use it. Um, because if there is that option, um, then even when persuasion fails, maybe implementation will work. Um, and, and I think that that can be a really powerful, a really powerful force. And I, I think that there is actually a little bit of an analogy to Uniswap there. Um, you know, one of the things that's so beautiful about Uniswap is that it, at least at, you know, the last I, the last I was aware, there was like 35,000 different pairs that you could trade on Uniswap. You know, if you compare that to like a centralized exchange, it's so different. It's so different. It's like night and day because of the fact that it's permissionless. And so it allows, it allows, um, you know, it allows projects to go and list their tokens or, or community members even to go list tokens for projects, um, you know, with, with no barrier. And that makes it so that, you know, whole things can, can develop and get popular, even if nobody at the beginning who was in a position of power recognized them as being something exciting that should be promoted. Whereas with like a centralized crypto exchange, someone in that position has to look and say, okay, yeah, I think it's worth betting on this, even though it's early, we're going to go ahead and list it and support it and see what happens. Um, but the fully open model just, you know, allows for potentially much faster evolution and, and allows ideas to end up actually winning out, even if very few people who were in a position of power at the beginning um, understood them. So that's part of the um, sort of the underlying reason why we're making that change. And so the thing is that like, you know, with any smart contract protocol, of course, anyone could come and deploy a fork of it anytime. So it's not that it's not that it's really new in that sense. But the thing that we're doing here 
um, in this next protocol release is that, um, so, so, so to back up, so a smart contract on Ethereum is able to deploy further smart contracts. That's like something that a smart contract can do. And so in this new design, um, the, the core reserve smart contracts that we are intending to release are themselves factory contracts. So they're contracts that can be used to deploy more contracts. Um, and so those can be used to basically create more and more reserve tokens, um, which we're calling R tokens, um, at least for now. And we will use that factory contract to deploy um, one additional R token. So there will be two stable coins that we've deployed at the beginning. And I'm happy to talk about like sort of what that new one will look like, what it'll, you know, the kinds of things it'll be composed of. Um, but, you know, like we talked about a moment ago, like if the governance were to go off the rails, you know, we could deploy a new one that wouldn't even necessarily be seen as like a contentious thing. It's just, it's just as actually kind of part of what is expected in this ecosystem. And the thing is, with this mechanism of being able to deploy um, more R tokens, where you know the plan is actually even to have a user interface for that, so like community members, um, you know, will feel invited to do it. That's something where um, one one of the differences between that and like an ordinary just sort of copying and pasting the code of a project and going and doing something that's different, that's kind of a fork or a comp competitor, is that when you deploy a new R token um, with the factory contract it's still connected to RSR. So it still is part of the same ecosystem. And in a sense is, um, is not sort of fully competitive in the same way. You can sort of choose, okay, I want to deploy a new R token that works a different way, but I still want it to be part of this overall reserve ecosystem that exists that has you know, some network effects and some you know, sort of brand attached to it in people's minds and so on and so forth. Um, and it'll also be economically connected to RSR. Now, obviously people could copy and paste the contracts and do something that's totally different um, and, and, and they're free to do that, but there are downsides to that. Like then you're sort of starting from scratch instead of taking advantage of this community and you know, sort of the, the large amount of value that already exists in it. So, so that's one change is that anyone can deploy a reserve token with this new version. Um, and um, yeah, I think, so like I mentioned, the, the intention is to, to actually have a published UI for that. So, you know, sort of similar to Unisoft where anyone can go and deploy a pair, um, the same sort of thing will be true of our tokens. We might not have a UI for deploying a new R token right at the beginning, because I kind of think at the beginning, very few people will sort of have motivation to do that. I think it's the sort of thing that could get significantly more popular as some R tokens start to gain notoriety, then people start to see the incentives and understand the reason why they might want to create one, which actually can be a profitable thing to do. Um, and I guess I can get to that in a moment. Um, but so each R token that is deployed, and so it's like every R token, whenever I say R token, like RSV is like one R token. And then there can be additional R tokens that are like other stable coins. And like the protocol is basically meant for deploying stable coins. Like you, you, you could potentially use it and try to make like a basket that wasn't particularly stable, but that's not really what's optimized for. It's basically a protocol for deploying basket backed stable coins. Um, so each R token is governed separately. So when we talk about decentralized governance, um, we're talking about that on like a stablecoin by stablecoin basis. There's not just one governance protocol that would govern every R token that gets deployed. Instead, every time you deploy an R token, you actually get to choose how it's governed. 
like you could you could set it up so that it's like owner address is just like your wallet and you just govern it yourself or you could have it be governed by a multi-sig or you could have it be governed by you know some novel DAO that you've invented yourself um and so that some R tokens that are deployed um, will be fully out of our control. Like they, they might not even be governed by RSR holders. They could be something totally separate. Um, and part of the point of that is to permit open experimentation in governance approaches. So, you know, we're going to try to nail it on our first try. Um, you know, once we get past an initial token voting phase, um, at least that's how it looks like we'll, we'll go for now. But again, we, we want to recognize the fact that like, Maybe we're not going to come up with the absolute best decentralized governance mechanism in the world, and maybe someone else would. Um, and we want to invite, um, you know, experimentation within this ecosystem. So, um, any questions on that level? Like, I'm going to talk about like a lot more about how the protocol works, but like just that idea of the factory contract and allowing others to deploy our tokens. Uh, yeah, I don't think I. Uh... Uh, this is the first time I've heard I've heard of this concept, and it's sort of blowing my mind right now. I've got a lot running through my <laughs> head at the same time. Um, so I just want to replay back to you what I think or what I'm getting out of this. Yeah. So let's say, for example, uh, that right now we've got uh, RS, let's say RS Ernie and RS Burp, and these are two R tokens, and they're both currently because it's a it's at the infant stage. They're both backed by a basket of stable coins. So whether it's DAI, USDC, USDT. And then at some point, the governance for both of these separate tokens, RSR, RS Ernie and RS BERT, are, uh, the governance teams for each will then decide what to, what to compose that basket of. So maybe RS Ernie decides, hey, let's get a basket of, I don't know, tokenized, uh, tokenized Pokemon cards or something like that. And the other one chooses land. And mm -hmm. so then there's this kind of play out of, okay, well, Pokemon cards tank and all of a sudden that token loses its collateralization and it loses the confidence and a lot of people move over to this RS BERT, this other uh, R token, and that kind of takes the lead and, and moves forward. And I think, is, is that, am I kind of on the right track there in terms of what yeah. you guys are hoping happens? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the, and the, I love your example. <laughs> um, and, and that actually, that idea actually relates to um, so an idea that Hayek popularized. Um, and um, so the, the idea, the basic idea is if you, if you sort of allow for competition of private currencies, of currencies that aren't issued by governments, um, and you have lots of currencies that are available to people, then like the market will end up determining you know, which ones it likes. Like people will choose to hold some and they'll choose not to hold others. And so you can have sort of open competition. And the thing is that, like, I think one idea that comes to my mind when I think about that is like, well, are we gonna have like zillions of different coins? Like that sounds bad. Like we, we don't really want zillions of different coins. We want everyone using probably one, you know, we want everyone using kind of the same thing because then you have the simplicity and the ability to transact with everybody. And I do believe, I personally believe that um, that with a system like this, you will get like what's called like a Pareto distribution where you have like, you know, one coin that is by far the biggest and then like another that's, you know, pretty big and then another that's like significantly smaller and then like a long tail um, over the course of time because there's, you know, because everybody does kind of want to use the same currency if they can, there is a lot of value to that network effect. But 
allowing for that open competition, you might have sort of a flippening, if you will, every once in a while. If it's like, well, this one kind of got corrupted and it's not really being governed the right way. And this other one's doing better and it's progressing faster and it has a better basket and people trust it more and so on, then maybe there'd be a mass migration from one to the other. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's, that's the basic idea. Um, I've actually got a question with regards to uh, mass adoption and new users coming onto the platform, if this was the case. Uh, is there a fear? So people would technically use this platform as a store of value, right? So they don't lose purchasing power based on mm -hmm. their current local currency. Now, if I was to pick, let's say, in the same example, RS Ernie, and it turns out that it wasn't really governed properly and I lose value, is there going to be... Uh, a point where there may be too many tokens that people are sort of nervous to get onto the platform or don't understand how it works and have to constantly monitor whether or not their current token is being governed properly? I think it's a really reasonable concern. Um, I think a good analogy, like part of the reason why I don't think that will be a problem ultimately is that like, like if you look at the entire crypto industry today, there's a lot of coins that are not trustworthy, right? It's like, there's a lot of coins where they, they might actually be scams. Um, and then there's a bunch of coins that, you know, aren't scams, but like, you know, they're very volatile. And then there's some that are like meant to be stable, but they're not credible. And then there's some that are meant to be stable and they are credible and they seem like they're working great. Um, you know, with like, you know, it seems like USDC is kind of like the best stable coin out there right now in terms of, uh, total credibility. Um, and if you look at the way that people behave in the crypto industry, they do tend to figure out, you know, what makes sense and what is trustworthy and what to use. And that's even in a very sort of disorganized, uh, decentralized ecosystem where everyone's making lots of individual decisions and there's all these different platforms and so on. Um, so I think that, I think that sort of tells us that um, even if you do have some R tokens that are higher quality than others, like that that information will end up propagating and traveling. Um, and in expectation, the market will sort of come to consensus on which ones make sense to use and support. Um, and then I also think that for like a lot of those decisions, even, even the decision to use USDC, for instance, in a way isn't necessarily, that decision isn't necessarily made by end users in a lot of cases you know, it's made by the platform that they're using, right? So if they choose to use some platform that's like, you know, a financial app of some kind, and they're placing their trust in that app, then, you know, it's up to that app to decide which coins to make available to their users, whether that's a user custody application or a cloud custody application, sort of doesn't matter. If you're the maker of the app, you still kind of get to determine what the user gets to choose from. And so I think a lot of decisions will end up being made more on a systemic level than on an individual user level. So you could have a situation where you have, you know, you could have hundreds or thousands of different R tokens, but then say in the reserve app, maybe you only have two to choose between, you know, one has like certain properties and the other has uh, other properties. Um, you know, there, there isn't a need to necessarily advertise that long tail of complicated tokens to sort of, uh, you know, individual users that aren't prepared to make that choice. Um, so that's kind of how I see it playing out. Okay. And the, uh, the last question that I've got so far for this, and this is more of an investor question for RSR, um, you talked about how each one of these new R tokens, uh, I guess the, the creator or the founder would be able to 
um, choose their own governance structure. Um, is there the likelihood that RSR then becomes irrelevant if another R token wins out that doesn't require um, a decentralized governance structure? Um, I Well, it could become less relevant in terms of governance. Um, it's still, there's still an economic function of RSR in this protocol, which maybe I should uh, maybe I should keep going and we'll get to that. Yes, um, probably probably a good segue there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So let me organize my thoughts here a little bit. Um, okay, so our tokens can generate revenue um, pretty much in the same way as um, our intention was for uh, RSV in the prior protocol design. Um, so basically, you know, th through through the main three potential transaction uh, or, or revenue mechanisms. So transaction fees, um, earning yield from basically, uh, you know, lending out the assets in the basket um, and uh, collecting basically fees from asset tokenizers who want to pay to have a larger portion of the basket. Those are sort of the main three revenue mechanisms. So the owner like the, the governor, whoever that is, um, whether it's a DAO or, or whatever, um, of an R token can choose how to distribute the revenue from that R token. Um, and they can modify that choice over time. Um, and so there's, this is, it is a little bit circular. It's like a little bit hard to explain these pieces because they like interlock. Um, but like one thing that they are likely to allocate significant revenue to um, is to RSR holders um, because RSR plays a role in ensuring R tokens. Um, and so we'll get to that, I guess, those details in a minute. Um, and so basically, but they can also choose to allocate that revenue um, to the R token itself. Um, like the R token itself could appreciate um, from revenue that's, that's generated by those mechanisms. Um, they could also allocate it to you know, other market participants. They could allocate it to like platforms that support the usage of that R token, um, or they could allocate it to, you know, parties that are participating in governance, um, or they could allocate it to themselves. So like this is, there could be a financial incentive to create an R token and compete and try to make it big uh, because you could then direct some of the revenue directly to yourself if you ran it in a centralized way, or, you know, you could direct the revenue to, you know, the DAO that's managing it. And I know that sounds complicated, and, and like it is a little bit complicated, um, but I think once I describe the overall structure, it'll start to make sense kind of why that is and why that's a good thing. Um, so, um, yeah, so the one more note on governance and then we'll talk about um, like how the RSR functionality works. Um, so, We, we try to set it up so that governance is pretty significantly modularized. Like I've referenced a couple of times in the conversation, the, the like owner role or the owner address. Um, and that makes it so that you can deploy a new R token and sort of connect a different governance mechanism to it. Um, and so by default, like that owner role can make essentially arbitrary changes to the R token contracts. I think it's not quite like fully arbitrary, but like really significant. But then you can imagine that the governance, uh, like the contract that has that governance control could itself um, basically update to, to, to reduce that control. Like it can basically 
um, allow an R token to become less less changeable by basically um, uh, if that if that governance contract is updated such that it can no longer call certain functions or change certain things in the R token itself. So basically, this is just to explain that like to start off, governance is like sort of fully open. You can change anything, um, but then some R tokens, you know, the governors could choose. Uh, to basically reduce the amount of things that can be changed about them in order to give the R token holders more certainty about what's going to stay the same and what's going to change. Um, so that could be that could be a re relevant dynamic. Okay, let's talk about the R like how RSR works in this new version of the protocol. So first off, like I should just mention that like the fundamental economics of how RSR fits in are the same. But there are some like pretty notable differences in exactly how it works and how it plays out. Overall, um, RSR holders are given more individual choice and control in this new version of the protocol, rather than being kind of lumped together. Um, and um, hopefully it'll be clear what I mean in a second. So RSR holders can choose which R tokens to ensure. Um, and and so the thing is that like RSR has always been meant to provide a backstop in the case of a collateral token default, right? If there's one collateral token in the basket or multiple that default for some reason, then RSR is there in part like to be able to make up for that. Um, and so in the prior protocol design, the way that that would work is RSR would be minted and sold by the protocol to make up for that deficit. Um, and so like all RSR holders would be sort of collectively diluted. Um, in this new design, RSR holders don't, they don't like sort of collectively and involuntarily ensure all R tokens. Instead, they choose which R tokens that they want to ensure on an individual basis. So basically that means that you can choose, okay, you know, I think this R token is good. You know, it's going to generate significant revenue. It's low risk. So I'm willing to ensure it. Um, and I'm willing to take some risk on it working in particular in exchange for um, a portion of the revenue that that R token generates. Um, so, so basically, so one consequence of this change is that um, no RSR is minted when an R token's collateral defaults. Like in, in the prior protocol, like I just said, if, if, a, if a collateral token defaults, the protocol would respond by minting and selling RSR to make up for that deficit. In this case, in a collateral default scenario, um, well, okay. So, why is that? Like, like why why are these changes happening? So, a, a reason to understand this kind of fundamental here is that it wouldn't be feasible with an open platform where anyone can create an R token because you know people could come and create R tokens that are terribly designed that default right away, um, and you don't want RSR holders collectively to be exposed to that downside. And so that's why if you want it to be an open platform where anyone can create an R token, then it also has to be that R tokens compete for RSR holders, uh, basically hitching their wagon to that particular R token, economically speaking, and basically taking on that risk, like choosing voluntarily to take on that risk in exchange for getting their cut of, of the revenue. Um, so, so the way that this works um, is that RSR holders can they, they can basically choose to put their RSR at stake um, in order to ensure any given R token. 
and and you could split your RSR up across multiple R tokens if you if you want to participate um, sort of pro rata across all of them, and then that would basically be emulating kind of how the prior protocol worked. Um, or you could choose, no, I want to go all in on this one because it seems like the best risk reward trade off. So, um, so yeah. So then, so so basically, we're adding staking, and we're adding staking in like the true sense of the term staking. These days. Um, a lot of people, when they say staking, they're kind of just saying, you know, a, a program where you lock up your tokens and you kind of get paid to lock up your tokens. And in my opinion, a lot of the times what's really going on is you're sort of paying people to not sell um, in hopes that that will drive the, price, the token price up because fewer people are selling. In this case, it really is what staking originally meant, which is you are putting the tokens at stake. Um, so you actually are taking some risk that you could lose your RSR tokens in exchange for something, in this case, in exchange for your share of the revenue that's directed to RSR holders for that R token. Um, so then what happens is if an R token has a collateral default, the RSR that's staked on it can be basically taken away, it can be seized um, and sold in order to make up for the default. So you know that's basically happening in place of RSR being minted and sold. So no more RSR has to be minted because instead um, it's basically only the RSR holders that have chosen to stake on that R token are the ones that are affected. And they're just affected by that RSR being taken pro rata in order to pay for that default. And again, the thing is that like collateral defaults are not expected to be common events, right? We're talking about essentially like a black swan type event. Um, but it's something that is important to protect the R token holder from, the, the, the stablecoin holder. And so basically it's a way where the RSR um, staker is, you know, they really are providing insurance. They're basically taking on that tail risk that they might have to pay out once in a blue moon in exchange for a regular stream of income. Um, and, and so if no RSR is staked on a particular R token, then it has no backstop in the case of collateral default. Like an R token only has a backstop if it has insurance, and it only has insurance if it's offering uh, revenue to RSR stakers. So that kind of brings us back to what I was saying before about how the governors of a particular R token can choose um, exactly where to allocate that revenue. But there's a very strong incentive to allocate some of it to RSR stakers because that's what causes the R token to be insured. And the R token being insured is part of the value of what an R token is, and it's part of what would cause it to be popular. Um, so you could definitely use the protocol to create an R token that, uh, that doesn't pay anything to RSR holders, but it also wouldn't have any insurance. Um, and so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be sort of carrying forward the fundamental value proposition of the protocol or one of them. Right. Um, and so um, I guess, uh, sorry, a quick question here. I'm trying to wrap my head around this whole new thing. Yep. <laughs> um, so the arbitrage mechanism as we know it, or as we previously had thought about, is no longer going to be a thing. Now, RSR holders will just essentially earn by staking um, to their desired R token and collecting a portion of that revenue. And of course, as you just alluded to, if there are R tokens that don't have enough RSR staked, what'll generally happen is just like, I guess, Aave and any DeFi protocol, they'll increase the percentage of revenue to be distributed to RSR holders so that they incentivize them to stake. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, yeah, and let, let, me, let me say like a, a few more things to try to make that as clear as possible. So, okay. so basically in this new protocol, 
like you're saying, RSR holders can directly earn income. Like in the prior protocol, you actually couldn't, um, you couldn't directly earn income. You could go use your RSR to participate in an arbitrage process, um, and that would bring you income. But here, actually sort of the, the same source of income is now directly accessible to RSR holders. And so you can just stake, and then you will essentially passively receive that income because of the fact that you chose to stake on that R token. Um, and so, um, yeah, so basically what, what this means is that RSR still stabilizes um, RSV or like the R tokens through insurance, but it doesn't stabilize them through arbitrage. Um, so basically in the prior design, the uh, you know, RSR stabilized RSV in two ways. One, it provided an insurance backstop in the case of collateral token default through minting and selling of new RSR. Um, and two, it was used as a transactional currency in the course of arbitrage trading on RSV, and then it was burned. Um, in this new design, RSR still stabilizes the R tokens through the insurance backstop, which is actually economically sort of the more fundamental mechanism, but it's no longer used in arbitrage, which is now just performed via like ordinary minting and redeeming. Um, so it's, it's, it's an elegant, it's a more elegant economic design we feel like, and it's actually, even though we're gonna have to educate the community about the change. And I think that there might be some confusion at the beginning. I think once people wrap their minds around it and also like new people who are just gonna learn about RSR in the future, I think it actually is a little bit easier to wrap your head around economically than the prior version of the protocol. But so one implication of this is that the RSR supply is fixed at hundred billion forever. So in, instead of the RSR supply going up when there's a default from minting and going down, from uh, you know from burning during arbitrage. In this case, the supply stays fixed, but the difference is that um, uh, as an RSR staker, you can directly earn you can directly earn that income um, instead of instead of that income sort of being used to burn RSR um, and you know change the token supply, which has you know maybe a, it has in a macro sense the same economic effect. But in the new version of the protocol, the economic effect is like even more direct and like sort of palpable and understandable. Um, what happens in the case, let's say, for example, um, I have an R token that uh, I guess the collateralized basket of, of assets loses value. And so we're having it with or we're having to draw from the RSR insurance. Uh, what happens if it continues to, to decrease in value? Um, how, how does the RSR, I guess, ever get regenerated? So let's say we're at 100 million um, circulating RSR uh, or whatever that number ends up being. Um, how do we get back to that after it's, being, after it's been used for insurance? So let's say that, you know, so there's 100 billion RSR. Let's say that there's, I don't know, 10 billion staked on a particular R token. And then that R token experiences a default, which again, like, you know, we have to spend a lot of time talking about defaults because it's like part of the core mechanism that we're building this like, you know, important backs up for. It's still, you know, expected to be a pretty unlikely event, but let's say that that happens, then the result would be, you know, some of those 10 billion RSR tokens that are staked would be seized. Let's say that the protocol needs to seize 3 billion of them in order to make up for the default. It seizes those, and it uses those to basically purchase a, a new collateral asset 
that it is replacing the defaulted asset with. So those RSR tokens um, are being sold into the market in order to purchase that other collateral. And that's a similar dynamic to the prior protocol where the prior protocol would have just been minting new R tokens from nothing and basically selling them for additional collateral. Here, it's just taking RSR tokens that already existed. So instead of like diluting the RSR holders overall, the number of RSR is staying the same, but it's taking RSR from the, the stakers who were staking on that particular R token, who are providing insurance to that particular R token and selling some of their RSR in order to make up for that. So at the end of all that, the, no, the total number of RSR tokens is still 100 billion. What happens if you don't have enough RSR tokens and insurance to make up that difference? Then the R token itself is worth less. You know, so so let's okay. say that let's say you would have needed 10 billion to make up the difference, but there's only five billion staked. Um, then it would seize all five billion and sell them all. Um, and then the R token itself, you know, it, it wouldn't have been able to re-collateralize. And so that's exactly the reason why you know the governance of an R token will need to offer enough income incentive to RSR stakers so that there is enough of an RSR backstop in the case of a default. Okay, and how is that selling process going to work? Is that within the protocol itself? Uh, let's say it needs to sell RSR in order to make up that difference. How does that work? Because obviously they don't want to dump it all at once because that's going to create a huge fluctuation in prices. Yeah, so the this is something that is modularized as well. So basically um, the way that we've designed it and coded it, it so far is that um, trades can happen on decentralized exchanges but governance can actually update which decentralized exchanges those trades are happening on um, so that you know, if liquidity builds up on a new decentralized exchange and it's better than an existing one, then it can be routed to those other decentralized exchanges. Um, so yeah, so, but basically the, the short answer is like, we're currently planning for those trades to occur on decentralized exchanges. And this gets pretty complicated um, because of what's called MEV. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but basically like if you're doing large trades on decentralized exchanges, especially if those large trades aren't um, initiated by like a human who has market information, um, then like miners can actually do what's called sandwiching your transactions and extract value from you. Um, so there's a bunch of complicated technical problems that the protocol team has been working on in order to optimize that. Uh, but yeah, the short answer is those trades will happen on decentralized exchanges is the current plan. The alternate um, option, by the way, like there is like a different piece that can be plugged into that trading module, um, which is that the protocol could basically just create auctions of its own. So it could say like, okay, we're auctioning off this batch of RSR for this collateral token over you know the next six hours and like bids accrue and then it takes the best price and then it does that again like you're saying you wouldn't really want to do it all at once because you want to sort of get the best price that you can get and not like overly impact the market um, but yeah basically an ongoing auction process can also be um, potentially plugged into that that trading uh, sort of module for the protocol right that yeah sorry uh, there's a, there's a lot of information for me to try to uh decipher through right now and i'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have to listen to this multiple times to, to really understand um, everything that's being said uh so i'm assuming that once mainnet goes live then anybody has will have the option to create their own r token is that is that when you expect to launch this i guess this platform 
Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the contracts we deploy will be the factory contracts. Um, I, I'm not sure, like I said, I'm not sure if we will publish a UI for like easily doing that without being like technically savvy um, at the very beginning. Um, and because again, like I don't really anticipate there being a whole lot of excitement or incentives to do it right at the start. It's something more that I think could develop over time. Um, but yeah, it, the, the functionality is going to be live from day one. And my assumption is that the ability to switch from one R token to another will be pretty seamless for the, for the end user. In, in case they go to, I don't know, their local grocery store and they're accepting RS Ernie, but I've got RS Burr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the R tokens themselves are just ERC20 tokens. So, you know, then there's this whole other question of exactly how do we offer them in the reserve app? Exactly how do we go about you know, getting them integrated on exchanges in the crypto world and so on and so forth. And we have ideas about that, um, but, you know, they just, they, they will be independent tokens. And so they can be used in all the ways that an independent cryptocurrency can be used. And, uh, and what type of chain is this going to be on? Is this going to be, obviously Ethereum with this gas um, is, is a bit of an issue right now. Um, how, how do you plan on getting around that and, and, and this, I guess, having multiple tokens out? So that plan has stayed the same. We continue to plan on the sort of core protocol running on Ethereum and then um, implementing the token on side chains on, on sort of layer two um, scaling options. Um, and so like in the reserve app, our plan continues to be for users to transact on a layer two chain rather than directly on Ethereum. Um, because of, yeah, because of those, you know, gas and transaction issues. And we, we think that you know, with ETH2, things will get better, but it'll still be the case that for an ordinary user making an ordinary financial transaction where they don't need to be plugged in with like all of DeFi or anything like that, um, that transacting on a layer two sidechain is the way to go. Awesome. I think those are all the questions I've got for the time being. I myself have to have to re-listen to this um, to get all the information extracted um, before I'm sure I'll have a ton more questions and we'll read into a lot of other people in the community and how they react to this. Um, this is very interesting. This is actually very exciting. Uh, my first thoughts on this is that this seems to be uh, a better incentive uh, and a better, I guess, monetization strategy for RSR holders. Um, the arbitrage, as you were saying, uh, doesn't actually allow you to hold the token. I, th I think if I, if I recall properly, you would have to essentially sell the token and then rebuy it back. Um, but this, I think, would be a uh, better, and I can actually envision it, and it seems to be easier to understand. Obviously, in the very beginning, uh, there may be a lot of tokens. There may not be a lot of tokens. Um, it's probably hard for you guys to anticipate and to figure that part out. Um, and I think over the course of time, this is actually pretty cool to, to make this more of a community uh, initiative to, to try to figure out the perfect balance of governance and, 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 and token composition in terms of the collateral um, that works. And, and, and the one that's going to win out will be uh, the one that, that kind of learns from all the other failures and, and ends up being the one that the community chooses. So I'm very excited to see how this will all play out. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. And, and I think there's one more thing that makes sense to go ahead and mention about our launch plan, which is the, you know, the other R token that we plan to launch. So our intention is to basically have uh, two R tokens, one that is pretty much exactly the same as RSV today. Um, that's basically just a dollar pegged coin where the basket just consists of plain vanilla US dollar backed stable coins, um, where 
at least for the time being, you know, because that doesn't generate revenue, um, that will also, you know, that will also not be a source of revenue for RSR stakers and also won't attract um, insurance. If that R token is to attract insurance over time, it needs to charge transaction fees or it needs to charge those issuers um, for their share of the basket. And that's something that I think it could do at scale profitably, um, but at its current size, it probably wouldn't. And so it'll probably continue to exist and not have backing in the way that sort of RSV, the beta version, does today. The new one that we're intending to deploy is, um, is planned to be backed by essentially what we call like DeFi bearer assets, which are the tokens that you get when you go deposit stable coins or I mean really any coin, but in our case, stable coins into DeFi protocols um, where basically you're given a token in, in return that basically represents a claim on the balance that you've deposited. So like if you go and you deposit USDC into Compound, you get compound USDC, CUSDC, which basically is later redeemable for USDC plus whatever amount of yield was generated by the compound protocol with, with your portion of the balance since you, you know, since you initially deposited. Um, and this pattern exists, you know, with also with Aave, you know, compound has C tokens, Aave has A tokens. Um, and then similarly, if you go and you deposit liquidity in an automated market maker like Uniswap or Sushi or Curve, um, you'll get a token in response that basically represents your share of that liquidity pool. So if you go to Curve and you deposit, you know, some stable coins into a liquidity pool, then you get this token, and then you come back later and you redeem it. Um, well, you get the original stable coins, or actually, you'll get you'll get some combination of the original stable coins because the pool could be in a different state. But you'll also get probably more because more because fees will have accrued um, from the people who have come and traded. And so what that means is that DeFi has produced this long tail of tokens that are kind of effectively like dollars, but with yield baked in. But it's really inconvenient to use those tokens themselves as a currency. Like it's not actually commonplace to go and like buy or sell other cryptocurrencies on exchanges with these like weird DeFi bearer tokens, uh, bearer assets. And so the insight here is that, well, we can easily aggregate those together into, uh, into a basket um, and use them to back an R token. And that produces a simple single token that is effectively dollars with yield baked in. Um, and you can also have insurance on top of that because you know the fact that there is revenue being generated means there can be incentive for RSR holders to come and stake. RSR holders can earn their share of that revenue, um, and that can also you know uh, make it so that if any one of those DeFi protocols have like a smart contract bug or, or a liquidity crisis or something that caused a default, um, the R token holder could be made whole again if there is enough RSR insurance in the system, um, and the RSR holders would end up paying for that. And so if like when you end up thinking through the economics here, roughly speaking, um, basically what this comes down to is that there needs to be a higher percentage of yield in dollars uh, of revenue um, than there is in terms of a probability of the average collateral token defaulting. So if there's like, uh, you know, a 0.25% chance um, of the average collateral token defaulting and there's you know, a uh, 4% um, yield that's coming from that um, collateral token basket. Um, and uh, well, I, I should say, let's say, let's say a 2% that's going to the RSR stakers and maybe 2% that's going to the R token holders. 
um, because 2% is more than 0.25% when you do the math, um, that's a good deal in expectation for RSR stakers. Um, and so basically that, that, that's sort of some of the fundamental economics that ends up playing out that would determine whether it's attractive or not to stake on any particular R token. The, the RSR stakers as a collective are kind of be looking at, well, how likely is a default? Because we don't want our RSR to be seized. Um, and how much are you offering us in terms of you know, annual revenue? Um, and you know, is that a good deal overall? Right, and, and I think, uh, I mean, I don't wanna speak out of turn here, but I think uh, it would generally make more sense to be in this new and, and staked in this new R token that's coming out um, for the simple fact that uh, obviously most people see Aave and Compound and all of these DeFi protocols as um, there's still a little bit of DeFi protocol risk, but it's, it's highly unlikely given the amount of assets that are currently staked in there for them to, to really have any issues. Obviously, um, just having a basket of just the stable coins themselves will be a bit safer um, and, and you will have some risk with stablecoin defaults, but not as much as them being staked on a protocol and right. having those protocol coins. Um, do you expect with that education coming out that the majority of people who are currently in an RSV will transfer to that new token? And when is that token going to come out? Well, so that token will come out when we do our mainnet launch. So, you know, we'll, we'll see exactly when that is again, targeting Q4. Um, and we do intend to offer it to users in the app as well. Um, and if you think about it, it, it basically means that we can offer kind of like a checking account and a savings account, just the crypto version. It's just, you know, sort of the, the, the stable dollar token and the dollar token that has some yield along with it. Um, as for how many will switch, I don't know. I mean, if, if I were them, um, I would switch and hold the token that had the yield baked in. I think it's gonna be a popular option. Um, we won't know for sure until we offer it to them. And I should say, I don't think we're gonna offer it right at the moment that we deploy the protocol. It'll probably be, you know, like a bit later, um, in part because, you know, we'll just want to test it and like make sure it's working well before we offer it to our users, but also just because we have so many upgrades to the app itself that are already in the pipeline, um, that it's just unlikely that the two events, the, the two things will be launched right at the same time. So we'll probably launch it and, you know, work on integrating it into DeFi, work on integrating it into the broader crypto ecosystem, um, and then basically as soon as it makes sense to also start offering it to our app users. Um, and I guess the one more thing I want to say about this is that I personally believe, and, you know, we'll see uh, how this plays out, but I personally believe that this could be a really useful and interesting asset to the cryptocurrency world overall, not just to our app users who are trying to escape inflation, but also to people who speculate on crypto or use crypto for other reasons around the world. Um, and so, you know, sort of contrary to the attitude that we had with the first version of RSV, which was like, you know, it's it's useful to us. We think that the, the robustness is good in case anything goes wrong with one of these stable coins. Um, but for the end user, it's not, there's not really anything special or exciting about it compared to say USDC. And so because of that, we didn't really put a lot of effort into trying to push it in the crypto ecosystem because it just felt like there wasn't a significant upgrade to offer to people. In this case, this token, I think, really is a significant upgrade. Like it's something that, you know, I as like, you know, as the leader of our project 
I have to make decisions about like, where are we going to put the money in our treasury? And, you know, we actually looked at some of these DeFi protocols earlier on and decided, you know what, it's a little bit too risky. We don't want to put our money in, you know, we don't want to lend out stable coins on these DeFi protocols, even though there could be some return there. And we decided to take a more conservative route. It's something where like, I am actually a user of this. Like I'm excited for a portion of our, our project treasury to actually exist in this R token and earn some of that yield and have some of that insurance on top of it. Um, and I think others in the crypto ecosystem might be excited about it too. So we're gonna look into, we're gonna gauge interest, um, but if the interest is there in the way that um, I'm hoping it will be, and that I think it might be, then we might end up doing a really significant push to get this integrated all throughout the crypto, crypto ecosystem, much more than RSV has been up until today. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Now that I'm thinking through it more, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Me as a RSR holder is very excited about that. And I don't see how somebody using the app or using RSV right now wouldn't switch over, especially if you've got enough RSR staked um, that there would be the insurance built in there for that little bit of risk you'd be taking on. So um, I would hopefully expect uh, if there is the proper amount of education and the understanding that people would would then move over and and this this concept of of this product does start to take over and and will get pushed out more and and we'll see people openly talking about it because they are um, starting to generate revenue by holding these things um, and they're not just finding a stable currency but they're able to also add to their wealth that way. Um, I think would right. be really, really cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, is there anything else we haven't covered yet? I know we're, we're touching on a bit over two hours here, so I, <laughs> I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, um, I think we've covered a lot, but if there's anything else that, that you think we should be covering, uh, I please. feel good about that as an overview. I don't think um, there's anything else I had on my mind for now, but I know that, you know, you asked on Twitter if people had questions. So if there are questions that you have on a list that you want to go through that we, that we haven't touched on, um, I'd be happy to answer a few. Uh, well, I mean, you're probably pre pretty disappointed and I'm pretty disappointed that the most general question is, and I don't want to ask this, so you don't really have to answer it, but it's just when is Coinbase coming? When is Grayscale coming? Um, <laughs> what are your price predictions? <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Um, although there is one interesting one, um, and, and I think it had to do with um, Axie Infinity and the, the Axie token, as well as SLP. Um, being available for people in the app to um, to essentially trade for RSV. Mm -hmm. um, do you foresee adding any more currencies um, or any more cryptocurrencies uh, to that list uh, of offering? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the team is just going to keep track of what our users would benefit from and what they would want and be excited about. Um, and I think we probably will continue to add more. Um, it's It's in some cases, it's relatively easier to add a new crypto transaction method than adding like a new banking transaction method. So um, I expect that we will continue to see um, additions on the crypto side. Awesome. I think other than that, the majority of these questions are all covered in terms of what we've talked about. Okay. Um, I, I foresee a lot more questions coming out after people have listened yep. to this, yep, 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 <laughs> but, yep, but, that's, sure. but that's for a future time and that's for you guys. And I'm sure when you guys release more information um, and some type of paper that describes all of this, uh, I think we'll answer a lot of people's questions, but, yep. um, but obviously with the overview, people are going to have a ton of questions. Um, so I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast. I do have a couple of things that I usually ask guests um, in this updated version of my podcast after the first time you've come on. Okay. Um, and that's two things. And one would be the best piece of advice you've ever received. And it doesn't have to relate to crypto. Okay. Um... 
if you have any. Well, okay. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think this qualifies as advice. It's like, I, so, okay. That the main thing that stops people from accomplishing things is that they don't believe that they can. And so they don't try. And, and sort of the, the insight there is that like, you actually can figure out how to do way more things than you think you can if you're willing to spend a really long time like trying to learn and trying to figure it out over and over and over again. And if you believe that you eventually will figure it out, then you will try enough times and then you'll surprise yourself with how many things you can figure out. I think, um, yeah, there was a particular person who convinced me of that and uh, it's definitely a life-changing piece of advice. Love that. And the second thing I've got is the best book you've ever read. The best book I've ever read. Um, Well, I don't know. I don't know that I have a best book that I've ever read, but I'll tell you the book I'm most recently most excited about, um, which is called Black's Law Dictionary. And I just, I just want to promote this book because I wish I had known about it when, um, you know, long, a long time ago. It's this dictionary that just gives practical definitions. It gives the legal definitions of all sorts of terms, you know, terms that you would see in contracts, terms that you would see, you know, in the legal world where like you read over them and you're like, what does that really mean? It turns out there's a book that actually really clearly defines them all. And I think like everyone who's doing any kind of business should know about Black's Law Dictionary. And I'm a huge fan of it now. Awesome. Love it. I'm sure you've probably got a whole bunch of pages that you've just got tabs on. And <laughs> um, and then the, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The uh, last, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the last thing before, before I let you go, um, and this is something I asked you last time, uh, is what can we do in the community to help with the project? It's a great question. Um, I mean, once we get to the point of mainnet, um, you know, participate in governance and um, and stake. Um, you know, those are going to be two critical roles that um, RSR holders will have to play. Um, and so, I think in the meantime, um, an important thing is going to be. And I feel like a broken record because I think last time I might have also said like education, but like there's a new, we have a new education challenge. We need to get the word out um, about the details of this new protocol um, between now and the time that we launch it so that when we launch it, people understand it and they're, they're excited about it and they're, you know, they know how to come and interact with it. So, um, so yeah, so I'd say, you know, good on the people for listening to this podcast and trying to follow um, these complicated descriptions. And, you know, it's on, it's on the core team to uh, appropriately document this and go out and spend a lot of time answering questions, which is absolutely my intention to do. Um, But then, you know, much in the way that the community already has with the prior version of the protocol, um, you know, helping new entrants to the community understand is really important. And I think at this point, I think on chain, there's like 50,000 RSR wallets. So it gives some indication of the size of the community, probably more people holding on exchanges. So that, that sort of sets out our work for us. It's like, there's a lot of people who are already part of the community and um, we need to help them understand sort of this update um, by the time we launch it. Awesome. Well, that's all I've got for you uh, for this session. I want to thank you for coming on again. Uh, thank you for taking time away from your 
busy, busy schedule to come on and, and update everybody in the community about what's going on and about this new protocol. Um, and uh, I wish you and the team uh, the best of luck from now until mainnet launches and hopefully everything goes well. And I'm sure it's not going to be smooth sailing, but hopefully it's going to be as smooth as, as you can imagine. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. And you're, you're very welcome. And, and thank you again for putting in all the time and effort to, to produce this. Um, I, I super, super appreciate it. I hope you're able to get lots of value from this podcast. And as always, if you're interested in reaching out to me, you can contact me on Twitter at my personal account at RSR Ernie or the podcast account at InReservePod. And if you don't have Twitter, you can shoot me an email at InReservePodcast at gmail.com or feel free to join our RSR Rangers Discord channel uh, in the invite link attached in the show notes below. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you on the next podcast.